Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So here we are, the big showdown. In the tradition of Achilles versus Hector, Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin, or if you look at this in the vein of graphic novels and comic books, Batman versus the Joker. Here is the final showdown between Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty, uh, a dichotomy of good and evil uh, that kind of spawned, I think, a whole generation of similar characters. And that is uh, sort of the takeoff that I want to begin today on our episode of Lighting the Pipes. Yeah, we are looking at the final episode in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Now, you're correct, BFG, in saying that it's the final showdown, but it's also the first showdown. It kind of is the first showdown, yeah. But uh, and back then, back in uh, turn of the century uh, England, when, or in North America as well, where they read these... Uh, just want to, as an aside here, I picked up some headphones uh, thanks to my cousin from a package that finally arrived. That's a whole fiasco in itself. And uh, it's very weird to hear, hear yourself talking with headphones on. Yeah, strange, yeah. It's kind of like underwater. Do you ha- kind of like underwater, yeah. So how would you, uh, either as an audience or you, Bowman yourself, how do you adjust to the different sound? Should, should I talk... Because mm. I feel like I'm yelling, but I'm not. No, you're coming through good and clear. Um, I don't adjust oh, at all. All right, all. good. Just, okay. just, all right, good. Yeah. A- excellent. But excellent. I, I got a lot of practice talking, you know, like at a pretty steady clip voice in front of yeah. kids and in classrooms and stuff. So I don't know. I probably shout, you know, and I'm – you knows, but... I was also thinking of your your radio career at Mount Allison University. Oh, yes. Let's not forget my radio career, yeah. Uh, a Week to the Classics was the morning show that – I was first a program director on and then a host, and then I did two years of Music Makes You Smarter from a 7 to 9 p.m. slot on a Friday night, which was just a great, great laugh. But uh, those days are behind me now. Uh, On to bigger and better things here with you and Lighten the Pipes. This is the 10th, no, the 9th of September, 2017, and we are studying stories 23 and 24. That's pretty wild if you think about the fact that we only started this little project back in January. We're two novels and two dozen stories through. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy to think about it. Like, because after uh, we're going to begin our little, our, we have a brief kind of, I guess, uh, uh, I guess a little bit of an interlude while we read The Hound of the Baskervilles, and then we'll come back and we'll dissect that uh, well known novel. That's right. It's going to be a full month off, uh, at least. And then I got school holidays coming up in four or five weeks. Um, and we'll we'll try to tidy a show up maybe uh, mid to late October. That'll be good. Good for the Halloween season because everything I yeah. remember being told about Baskervilles is that it's quite quite a an ominous little treat. 
Absolutely, yeah. I, I read it a long time ago, and and I I still think it's one of my favorite novels. So I'm looking forward to what, it. Awesome, yeah. It's one to look forward to for sure, and uh, and it's kind of fun, interesting too because I'm going to go into this later when we talk about the publication history. But How to the Baskervilles takes place was the novel published immediately after the final problem after Conan Doyle kills Sherlock Holmes, and oh yeah, spoiler alert: Holmes dies in the final problem. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> But uh, well, he disappears. How anyway. the Baskervilles? He disappears, anyways. Yeah, but the Hound of the Baskervilles uh, is, takes place chronolo- chronologically before that, uh, and then until we finally get the return of the Sherlock Holmes collection with the first short story with Holmes' return in the empty house. Yeah, but Doyle we'll takes seven or eight years off, doesn't he? he? Takes he takes a few years off to give himself a break from Holmes, and then public outcry brings Holmes back, but he's not ready to bring him back to life as such. He gives us a story that Watson hadn't told before. Absolutely, uh, that, very that, clever. That, actually, that, it's it's really clever. If you that's think essentially about it. how it went down. Yeah. Anyway, it, um, it, it is because the whole chronological thing has always been jumping around throughout the story. So it's something as an author he was able to get away with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can't think of a, a, like a modern um, equal to that type of style or technique. Can you? <laughs> Maybe lost, but not really. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I can see what you mean, but where your chronology jump with the same characters. Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, yeah. Oh, that's, but that's the only kind of equivalence they're going to make to Lost and Sherlock Holmes, though. So we'll move forward. Well, is it though? Because I remember you saying something about Lost in, a, in an earlier episode. Maybe that was with our Ian Fleming stuff. I can't remember. Possibly. I was going to tell you though. Um, uh, speaking of Halloween and the Halloween season, and you know things coming up. Of course, uh, Stephen King's It has been made into a new film, uh, yes, which is getting pretty good reviews, I must say, uh, over here at least. I haven't seen it yet, but <laughs> haven't seen it yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like that, folks. It's going to be like clouds, that today. Clouds scare me. They uh, scare the shit out of me too. Like I, I read the book when I was about mm, twenty-one, maybe twenty-two, just after university. I was kind of late getting to Stephen King. You know, my dad always had King stuff in his. Uh, in around the house and I remember looking at it and being amused and kind of interested but I never read any of them anyway so when I finally got into a Stephen King um I read it and it was quite quite gripping um but I remember as a child the tv uh miniseries the ABC miniseries starring Tim Curry as Pennywise oh yes that scared the living shit out of me um so let me tell you why I'm I'm coming to this story yesterday uh a couple of people at work were talking about this film and, you know, wanting to go see it. And that's cool because they teach media studies and, you know, they're English teachers with me as well. So, yeah, we're having a good chat about it and about Stephen King and da da da. And, of course, the trailer makes and the poster makes really heavy um, use of this idea of the balloon, right? Which is kind of the calling card that Pennywise had and all that stuff. Yes. Um, and, of course, Thursday, completely unconnected, happened to be Sarah's aunt's 60th birthday. And because my daughter is a big fan of balloons, um, oh. Sandra gave uh, Sarah these balloons to take home, and that's that's cool. So um, I didn't think a thing of it, but because they're helium balloons, you know, they go to the top of the, the, the room, and they got the little string, right, that's hanging down. So you're basically thinking of a couple of balloons in around the house, the ceiling with the strings hanging down. No big deal. Well, there was one that got upstairs, and we were playing with it yesterday, the day before, and... Uh, Anyway, it was in the bathroom. I didn't want to wake up in the middle of the night and have... or Sorry, I didn't want to wake up and see a balloon in the bedroom and freak out. And so I put it in the bathroom just for um, just for the sake of, you know, keeping it out of the way so Rosanna wouldn't be distracted either if she woke up and wanted to play with the balloons in the night. So uh, imagine my surprise, 4 o'clock in the morning when I get up, 
in the morning, I'm just up, go to the toilet or whatever, and uh, we've got these little pull cords, right, to switch the light in the shower on, and a lot of British homes do, and um, we're pulling pulling down this cord to, I'm pulling down the cord, uh, only it's not the cord, it, in, in my early morning stupor, I'm, I'm pulling on this balloon, and I just keep getting this resistance, like this bounce, bounce resistance, and I don't know what's going on, so I look up in the dark, and there's this fucking you know, outline of a balloon bouncing in my hand and I nearly dropped my guts, like absolutely terrified. I'm like, oh shit, because what's going through my head, right? The film, the image, my childhood fears, they all just come rushing back to me in the, in, in the, the, the four o'clock light or darkness as it were. And uh, I, I just freeze in the bathroom for a minute and I'm just waiting for it to come. And then I realize, oh shit, right? These are the balloons that, that I brought home from or that Sarah brought home. Anyway, it was funnier. Funnier now than it was then. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to have my eventual come up into that fashion too. One of these days I'll be like, I don't know, coming home drunk or really tired or something. And in the middle of the night I'll see some shadows in the corner that remind me of Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, oh, hide well. in, I'll, hide, I'll hide under the covers. Good times. Good childhood yeah. times. Anyway. But but speaking of the stand, and just uh, I just revealed my card there. I actually just started reading The Stand, actually. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome book. Yeah. Well, I went. I was at a, work book, at, a, at a work book sale, and they had three Stephen King novels for like 50 cents each. I got The Dark Tower Part 1, which I didn't read prior to the film. I just went and saw the film on its own. and It's not good, by the way. Uh, secondly, I picked up It, and I also picked up The Stand. So I'm going to start yeah. with The Stand. Yeah, Everyone tells me that that's like his masterpiece. So I, I guess. I mean, if, if you're looking for something big and dense like that. I don't think it's necessarily his best writing. Um, but I mean, I'm, it, you know, it's all down to personal taste with Stephen King. You know, if, if, it's, true, a, true. if it's a big, long story, like stretched out, that, that kind of stuff you're looking for, uh, more epic in scale. Yeah, I think The Stand probably is the best hit. But I'm really partial to Misery. I think that's a wonderful story. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting reflection on writing in there as well like the whole craft of being an artist i think that's it's really really well Mm -hmm. textured into the story and i also really like needful things which is probably a lesser respected text of his but nevertheless still successful seller i really really like that one yeah and i also like christine the ridiculous story about the the uh about the car that comes to life you know i mean he's got some really good stories in in otherwise unlikely story books if you see what i mean like he's got really good writing and compelling characterization in settings and contexts that you just wouldn't expect and uh, perhaps we should do a stephen king show yeah that's (laughs) nice on the side it's a nice idea idea, eh? i don't think i don't think it can happen on the side i think maybe once we're finished we're gonna we're gonna bounce around a few ideas but look enough enough with the preamble enough with the pleasantries the welcomes the hello how you doing it is episode number 10 we have uh, two stories to talk about today. We're going to finish off the memoirs, as you said, with the adventure of the Naval Treaty and then the final problem. Uh, how do you want to do this, pal? I think let's, let's just go right to it. Uh, I'll take the na- you take the Naval Treaty and I'll take the final problem. And uh, just uh, give us some information on the Naval Treaty, you know, and uh, cool. then you can give us, I'm sure you have some witty summary to give us on that as well. well and I- uh, then we'll just dive in. We'll light our pipes. Okay, cool. I wouldn't know if it's uh, witty, but I got a summary at the very least. And we've got, of course, our good friends at Goodreads. Uh, we'll see what they think about it as well. So, the Naval Treaty, um, an interesting one. It, thus far in the canon, the only story to be split over two months in publication in the Strand, October and November, oh, 1893. I did yeah. not know. Yeah, this is the longest story 
um, that. So where was the cutoff out. point in the, in the original publication? Uh, Do I don't actually I don't actually know. I'm sure my Klinger edition will tell me if I look for it. I just um, I'll have a look for it as we're as as we're talking about it and see if I can find it. But hmm. here, here's what's interesting. Although it was cut in two different editions of the Strand, Harper's Weekly published it on October 14th and the 21st of 1893 in America. And so if, if you're looking at those dates, you realize that this story was more complete or was first complete in an American audience before the UK got it complete, which is kind of interesting. It just goes show where in many way that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle base, but it's also American fan base, which gives a lot of credence to the idea. Hello. Hello. Well, yeah, I don't. Slight technical difficulties yeah, there, folks. Don't know what was happening there. I, I caught what you were saying that um, just at the start of it there that it it lent a lot of support to the idea that you know Holmes is now a household name in America as well. I was I would point I was pointing out that really not, he's not so much as a British or an American hero. He's a uh, a, a Western hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good shout. Someone that um, yeah crosses cultures and boundaries and all kinds of territory. Elementary, elementary. Okay, uh, yeah. So, boom, 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 boom. the naval treaty. Um, I, I'm tempted to just go to how I feel about this because I, I, I do, I, I do have a pretty strong feeling about this story, but. Um, I will go to what the critics think first. And by critics, of course, I mean the public, the rabble, the groundlings. See what they say. On average, uh, this story in the Goodreads community was given a 3.8 out of 5, which, if you're a mathematician, equates to about a 76%. So you're thinking a B or a B-plus average okay. for this story. Uh, oh, yeah, you requested um, uh, earlier, didn't you, Josh, that we get a little bit of... Um, a little bit of music to go along with our Goodreads. Is that right? Yeah, I think just uh, to show, you know, kind of t- something, uh, you know, um, popping that will uh, uh, express, you know, the various opinions that are bouncing around there. Something like this. Informed opinions. Yeah, some of these uh, Goodreads uh, reviews certainly are crack-ups. So. Very informed opinions, Scott. I don't know what you're talking about. Some of them are, and some of them certainly I, aren't. We should also probably compile not just Goodreads, but also just kind of give some flavor, you know, so we don't have to spend a dime to some of these people. But uh, maybe Amazon good reviews as well. They, they tend to be humorous and uh, out there. Yeah, they do. Uh, I guess the problem with the Amazon ones in in the little work that I have done researching them is that uh, they don't tend to review the individual stories so much as they do the collections. And maybe that's just because mm-hmm. I haven't dug around enough. But Amazon sells the collections, not the individual stories, right? That's true. But there's also we could, uh, the chapters and Indigo and I guess 
Barnes and Noble and other book chains that we could look at to have their own review sites, probably. Yeah, right enough. There are. Um, so yeah, let's just uh, let's just talk about what we got here with uh, reviews or opinions on the Naval Treaty, the public popular reviews. Here we go. I'm on the edge of my seat. I, I hope so because here's what Billy says: four stars. The best Holmes book I've read in a while. Doyle did a great job of falsely leading you to believe certain solutions. At first, I assumed it was the commissionaire and his wife, then the fiancé, her brother, and the uncle before removing my suspicion of the brother. Well done. Oh, I like that review. Someone had the same suspicions about Anne like I did. Cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see how you feel about Andrew. Andrew says... The key to this story is that Holmes is overloaded with information, much of it trivial. I was able to predict the whereabouts of the Naval Treaty, but couldn't piece together the antagonist. I was expecting a fancier resolve, but this story played out as though it could really play out in real life, in the 1800s. That's what the reader has to like about in this story particular. There isn't a fantastical element, even though you may believe there to be at times. The crime was committed spur of the moment, and was not a conjured plan by some mastermind. A man down on his luck from the stock market loss sees a chance of stealing something of value and takes his chance. 3.7 stars. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a good summary and a good review at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's Stacy. In this story, France and Russia will pay anything to know England's naval plans. A desperate thief acts. The disgraced official loses his mind, then months later calls for Sherlock Holmes because the treaty is still secret. I really didn't think much of this. First of all, the plot was boring, and the mystery and intrigue, which I normally find of interest, was simply lacking. I expected a lot more drama and mystery than what appeared in the novel. France and Russia hardly get mentioned. Congratulations to Arthur Conan Doyle on writing The Adventure of the Naval Treaty. A.K.A. I didn't have my international intrigue in this story, so therefore it sucks. Yeah, three stars. Um, This is what Cassidy thinks. Cassidy writes, This was clever. Four stars. <laughs> Clever. Hmm. That's it. That, that's what, exactly what Joseph Harrison thought that Holmes was doing when he commented on his monogram. <laughs> Here's what Sam thinks. Seems like a pretty classic and not, particular, not particularly remarkable case for Holmes. As ever, the writing and exchanges between characters are the highlights. Plus, the path of hints and clues dotted through the story are fun to follow, but the case is just a little dull. Mystery and impossibility just turns to happenstance. Two stars. I don't know why that's a bad thing, but, you know, to each their own. To each also, their own. Also, did, did they actually write particular Lily, and that's how you, you read it out, or is that just you making a faux pas? That's me on the faux pas. I think particular Lily needs to be adopted. It's kind of like, <laughs> it's up there with, like, in regards. and In, uh, and in so- regards. We don't say it that much. No, we don't, but anyway. I'm sure we can, work it, we can work it in somewhere. And I've got one more review, this from Beat, B-E-A-T-E, Beat, I guess, Beat. short for Beatrice or something of that nature. Um, here's what she says. The brutally American narrator is distracting. Two stars. <laughs> I got no idea what that is or where that's coming from. <laughs> All right, then. Did they watch the same thing? or Sorry, read the same thing? I'm not sure, man. I'm not sure, but... That's that's what Beat thought, anyway. Well, Beat's a bit of a Beat Nick, isn't he? Well, I tell you what, we got... Uh, well, what's that? That's six um, six reviews, two two-stars, 
uh, a three star, two fours, and a three point seven. So I guess that kind of works out to being about three out of five on those six. But overall, the community liked it three point eight. We have read reviews that have overall ratings more, worse than that. So three point eight on Goodreads. Well, hmm. I guess that's uh, getting the Stanley Cup. Well, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> right. I, I think I uh, I embellished there a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe. Speaking of Stanley Cup, um, this will be the last episode we do before the hockey pool starts up again. Uh, to the folks back home, uh, my cousin here, uh, our man Bowman, he runs a hockey pool, the Friends of Powell, and uh, he is definitely uh, the most efficient commissioner, uh, probably more so than in, in the entire NHL. And this is fantasy hockey. Well, I'm not that efficient because I'm not pulling a salary. And uh, last time I checked, you didn't pay you didn't pay your two pound entry for the playoff pool. How do I pay a two pound entry when I don't have the money to give to you? Well, we did we did explain that you'd give it to my mother, and uh, when she flew over to see Rosanna, she'd pay it to me. But who am uh, I? You know, I, I'm not keeping a black book of. Uh, well, your 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 sister's your. your your sister's coming up. I'll 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 give her the playoff. I'll, I'll give her the money then. Right. Okay. And now, with that business aside, let's slide into a uh, a plot summary of the Naval Treaty, shall we? Yes. Let's. At the start of this, the penultimate story of the memoirs, Watson is encouraged to reflect on his bullying days at school after a letter arrives from Percy Phelps, a childhood acquaintance who's now suffering from brain fever. Yes, that old chestnut of an illness is again at work. What's it been? Two stories now? But, surprisingly, and for the first time, in a male character. Well, sort of male. In keeping with bigoted stereotypes, Percy is definitely the most wimpy and effeminate of clients. Anyway, Percy has a major problem and needs Holmes' help. Betting on his old school chum's sense of decency, even though... Quote, unquote, chums. Chums, yeah. Even though the good doctor all but admits bullying Percy at school. <laughs> with friends with friends like that who really needs enemies. Anyway, uh, Phelps professes his desperation and Holmes is intrigued enough to take a train to Woking and visit the poor sod who hasn't been able to shake the guilt and shame from his apoplectic brain. When the dynamic duo rock up to his home, Briarbray, the seriousness of the case starts to import itself onto Holmes. Thanks to his uncle's influence, isn't nepotism sweet, Phelps holds a comfy position at the foreign office where he earns his pay drinking tea prepared for him by the commissioner's wife and exercising any number of nebulous administrative tasks. A naive simpleton at heart, Percy excels at being a well-paid idiot, and he accepts an important job of transcribing a naval treaty which could, if fallen into the wrong hands, wreak international disgrace upon Her Majesty's government and allies. The fact of the matter is, Percy was warned not to leave the document unattended and was entrusted to do the job. Well, he chose coffee instead and wandered from the office partway through the work. When he returned, the document had been stolen. Percy kept his shit together for a few minutes and followed appropriate channels of investigation before the brain fever kicked in, laying him up for nine weeks. Curiously, although the fear of leaked intelligence pervaded Briar Bray and those in the know for over two months, no international scandal arose. Whoever had the document was holding out for a higher bidder. When Holmes and Watson arrive in Woking, they're enthusiastically met, perhaps too enthusiastically, by Joseph Harrison, Percy's to-be brother-in-law, whose sister Annie hasn't left her fiancé's bedside since the illness hit. Harrison shows them into one of Briarbray's sitting rooms that has been adapted with flowers and a bed to fit the needs of a brain-fevering imbecile. 
Though Joseph leaves the room after introductions, Annie stays to hear Percy tell Holmes and Watson the story of how his copy of the treaty went missing. The details are plentiful and rank among the dullest of the canon's many info drops. Some coffee was late, the fool left the document on his desk, a bell was rung, a corridor was long, there were no footprints. But Holmes is nevertheless able to capture the gravity of the political situation and, after taking a break to smell the roses, assures a doubting Annie that her careless lover has succeeded in furnishing upon him seven clues from which he may gain traction. Holmes and Watson return to London to carry out some inquiries and to meet with Inspector Forbes, the latest in ephemeral filler from Scotland Yard. Accusing <laughs> Holmes of being a reputation pirate who takes the police credit for his cases, Forbes is not surprisingly bitch-slapped with share logic almost immediately after being introduced. Share logic, I love it. Back in his box, Forbes changes his tune and offers what he knows. Holmes and Watson see no wrong in the direction that Scotland Yard took and head off to meet Percy's uncle at Downing Street. Lord Holdhurst welcomes them with stuffy charm and nobility and holds court between his guests near the fireside while they discuss the finer points of the Naval Treaty's disappearance and the potential ramifications if it isn't recovered. It's here that Holmes first speaks the point that readers have probably been thinking about for a while already. Isn't it surprising that something hasn't already happened in the nine-plus weeks of its disappearance? If an international plot of scandal was being hatched, surely something would have hit by now, no? Well... Upon return to Briarbrae the next day, Holmes disappoints in saying that there are no concrete leads, but we know he's just keeping his cards close to his chest. Percy nervously informs him that just last night he intercepted a hooded figure with a knife outside his bedroom trying to gain access. He managed to frighten him away across the garden, but he reckons now that his life is in some danger, wrapped up in a web of international espionage that he can't quite comprehend. Holmes <laughs> encourages Percy to take a tour of the grounds, and along with Joseph Harrison and Watson, they pursue the estate. Harrison shows him a split piece of fence that could be indicative of some intruder, but Holmes shrugs it away. In fact, we've seen Holmes deliberately downplay evidence or act disinterested when, re when reconnoitering before, so the apt reader here is figuring in his mind, hopefully, that Holmes is deliberately keeping something back. Adding weight to this hunch, just before leaving, Holmes requests Annie to ensure that her fiancé's room is locked from the outside. Suspicions that Holmes is up to something, are confirmed for the reader when he asks Percy to go to London with Watson and himself for the night. A virgin to Sherlock Holmes would be forgiven for not seeing what's going on here, but having read the speckled band, the copper beaches, the yellow face, etc., we know he wants to return to that property on his own terms to catch a culprit. Bidding farewell at the train station, but promising to meet them for breakfast at Baker Street, Holmes leaves Watson to babysit the whining Percy for a night. Did the old school pals go clubbing and carousing in Kensington? No. Hit the bowling alley or indulge in Lascar's opium <laughs> den? No. Doyle tells us that Watson listened to Percy moan about his affairs and his ruined reputation all night, inconsolable as he was. It was probably the longest and most irritable evening and sleepover entertaining that the good doctor has ever or yet will endure. Yeah, Such... any guilt that he had taken on that case because of yeah, the you know, for sure. bullied, gone. <laughs> Such is the price of friendship with Sherlock, it seems. Anyway, back near Woking, Holmes creeps to Briarbrae and stakes out with sandwiches and a thermos until he spots none other than Joseph Harrison emerge onto the 2 a.m. lawn and enter Percy's room. Locked from the inside, thanks Annie, you're a swell gal, Holmes was able to corner the vicious Harrison and got a wee bit scraped up in the exchange. A pugilist's will almost always wins over a runty leech, however, and Holmes talked enough reason with his fists to get Harrison to hand over the stolen papers from the hiding place in Percy's own bedroom. Back at Baker Street, Holmes does indeed make breakfast and scarfs like a stoner before breathing a word of what went on. 
<laughs> in a cute but torturous gimmick, he toys with Phelps' already frazzled emotions by secretly plating up the recovered treaty <laughs> and getting him to uncover it while uh, sitting at the table. Percy is either enormously relieved or sexually aroused by this revelation. So, lib- <laughs> so liberal are his kisses for Holmes that it's tough to tell. Disappointingly, here is in one of the few instances where you're actually wishing for a classic ACD info drop to give a more complete picture of events, but we're left guessing instead. What were Harrison's motivations? Did he have buyers in mind? Was this an inside job staged by Holdhurst to gain leverage in government by being able to recover the treaty? Well, Sherlock bypasses all of this and says instead that he wired the full details to Forbes, whose force may or may not catch up with Joseph Harrison. Either way... Her Majesty's flotilla is saved from embarrassment, and, presumably, Percy Phelps can go back to licking envelopes and sipping coffee from the Commissioner's Cafe. <laughs> kind of like a uh, Victorian Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he is kind of, isn't he? Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Brain fever! That's where I'm a Viking! <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what do you think? We're going uh, gonna to light these pipes and get onto it. Let's light these pipes, baby. All right, cool. Let's do that very thing. Okay, pipes are lit. Once the laws are changed here and we, we, uh, in a year or so, uh, when you come to Canada, we should just actually light actual pipes if you know what i'm saying are the laws changing for sure mm, it's hard to say at this point there's a lot of legislation that is being pushed through so i don't think it's going to be like a, a merry-go-round of uh of feeling good you know yeah yeah i know what you mean of course it's not going to be i mean it never is is it but if you have the most basic like uh health issue you i think you'll be able to get it easily Oh well, bring on the health issue. Oh, my mom has like a like glaucoma here, so I think she's might she's been thinking about it. <laughs> All right, pal. Uh, let's let's get this show underway. We've got P I P E S perpetrators, principles, investigation. Uh, we've got secondary characters, and we have got the environs or the environment of the story. You notice how I kind of jerked the order around there just to keep you on your toes. <laughs> You definitely did, yeah. I, I thought maybe you're becoming dyslexic or something. Oh, no. No, no, no. Apologies to those who are actually dyslexics. I was just more referring to the uh, interpret how he was reading it on the screen. Maybe he was reading from left to right. Like he was reading uh, an- another possible faux pas on my part. I'm just going to shut up now. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the beginning of this story. I really like the beginning here. The very first paragraph, It's it's really a wonderful tease that Watson gives the reader. And I know we've seen him do this kind of before, but uh, like, I like this These one. cases we never heard about. Yeah. And the, and the case, which he's not able to talk about because it's oh. still, it's still going through like official records and stuff. And that, that's I a reference if... to the second stain, which I'm told we do get uh, a full story of later on, which is pretty cool. Oh, exciting. Exciting. I was thinking it might have been a possible hint towards, because I mentioned the royal family, it was hinted towards there. There was a film made in the late 70s called um, Murder by Decree. Mm-hmm. It was a Canadian-English production starring Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes, James Mason as Watson, and it was Holmes investigating Jack the Ripper. And 
much like the Alan Moore from Hell graphic novel that came down the road later on, it took uh, it took the idea that it was members of the of the royal family that were and and covering up the royal the royal family's indiscretions uh, that had to do with the motivations behind Jack the Ripper. Oh, cool! It's, it's, it's a great movie. I recommend ch- checking it out. Murder by Decree. I watched uh, I watched a film this week as well. Sarah bought it of all people. Like she just got it on the on the marketplace, you know, online like eBay or Amazon or something for like two quid. It was without a clue. You ever see that? Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. No. Oh, you haven't. Oh, you should see that. It's it's really funny. It, I mean, it's kind of dated funny, but oh, sorry, it's not dated funny. And what I mean by that is like the the films from like eighties, late eighties or something. But it's it's got a lot of kind of slapstick funny all the time humor it's light humor but basically the, the story is that um watson is um the are real... you having a storm are we what what'd you ask me are we having a storm if you're having a storm in your area no why the signal bad No nah, man, no storm here. Something because the reception not great at all. No, you're well. You're you're a little pixelated yourself. You're a little pixelated yourself. Uh, we'll just we'll just ride it out, man. Not to worry. I guess if you heard heard any of your sorry, reconnect on my iPhone here. Yeah, it might be an idea. Let's try that. I was just saying there with our little technical difficulties that if you get an opportunity to check out Without a Clue starring Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley, it's it's quite a good laugh. You know, uh, it's a spoof of Sherlock Holmes where Kingsley's Watson is really the smart, deductive uh, genius and Holmes is played by Michael Caine who's a failed stage actor turned drunk, turned womanizer, turned... It's just funny. It's And they solve a case in unexpected ways <laughs> and their partnership is quite strange and it, it's a good laugh. Um... Yeah, so check that one so, out. I have it on my list. That uh, sounds delightful. Yes, it's um, it, it's it's deliberate. It's deliberately funny. Whereas Roger Moore's Sherlock Holmes in New York is perhaps <laughs> more ironically funny. <laughs> That's the hipsters will like it. I'm sure they will. Is that, is, but uh, yeah, so moving onwards, let's get mm-hmm. into the uh, pipes here. Uh, we already got half our uh, ball of tobacco smoked. So <laughs> we do, yeah. <laughs> with had, all these technical difficulties, we've had so, some problems. Uh, Let's enjoy the rest of the uh, drag and uh, hop cool. into the uh, pr- principles. All right, we could do that. But just before we do that, I got a couple, of, uh, just a little note here on the political context, which might make this story interesting. Um, a couple of the critics I was reading outside of my annotated edition were saying that this this story can really be considered as one of the very first spy stories. And I don't know how you feel about that, uh, but just l- let me read you what basically I summarized from those points. Um At the time of publication, Russia was to the UK and France a bit like it was to America during the Cold War. Kind of dangerous and unknown, right? Uh, Consequences of a naval treaty theft would be more acutely felt among readers at the time than perhaps we now would feel something like that. This story, then, at the time, would be considered pretty high intrigue. And much of the suspense surrounding the theft, which I found to be a little dull... Um, would have been really tangible for in-the-know type readers, uh, even if it did end the story, I mean, like a little predictably in Holmes's kind of um, 
air out of the balloon ending, you know? Uh, yeah, this seems more like the uh, what they're saying then basically is the naval treaty is the is the the spy movie MacGuffin here. It's the lecture yeah, decoding yeah. device. I think yeah. I think that's a good way to to say it. Um, why do why the hell by the way does Holmes keep tobacco in his prison slipper or in his uh, his Persian slipper? I think I think there's some uh, f- kinky backstory somewhere that we don't know about. Maybe uh, we'll learn down the road. Hmm. It's also noticeable that when Percy meets uh, Watson, uh, he he points out the um, the mustache and there's some change to his mustache or something. Did you did you pick up on that? I did pick that up. Yeah, I I just thought that because they haven't seen each other in a long time, that he didn't recognize him by the mustache, and maybe Percy thought he seemed kinder or something than he was when he remembered him. Uh, maybe, yeah. Okay, yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk uh, principles. How how do you like Holmes and Watson in this story? Um, I, I like the fact that with Watson, for example, he has some agency in this story. Uh, the active role that he has is that the mystery he engages on his own volition, as opposed to being pulled from the, by the gravitational, I guess, pull, uh, of Holmes's strong orbit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, his country doctor's serenity is absconded by a dismissive from an old friend. So he's given the description on the first page, uh, you know, about the schoolyard taunting. It's it's clear that Watson was a bit of a bully to Phelps in these formative years. And I feel that he feels some guilt towards what happened to Phelps back in the day. And he wants to help him out, his fellow man, right? And uh, besides being a bully, he might have matured into a strong individual back that he is now. And uh, perhaps he just wishes to um, make amends in that way. So I found Watson's role pretty interesting. And even though he kind of becomes a wet nurse to the guy by the end of the story. (laughs) He does, yeah. uh, He really does. As I feel it was a good arc for Watson as a whole. He got to get he got some redemption for some for, for some of his uh, schoolyard assholery. <laughs> is that is that a, a proper noun or sorry is that, is that a noun an accepted noun? Assholery. I have I have, I have read it in various uh, chat room talk. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's you know the lexicon New American Dictionary that you're hoping for, but hmm. whatever. Whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think Watson's got some agency here as well. I, I like how um, we get that little, that after the letter, you know, he, he writes, uh, my wife agreed with me that not a moment should be lost in laying the matter before Holmes. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. It's okay, husband, go away. I think Mary Morstan, or Watson as it is, I think that she must have all kinds of guys on the side. <laughs> yeah. I do. I, come on, she got to, right? She seems like a, I mean, her, her personality is hard to track. I mean, if you base the character in from the from the side of four, I don't know. She seems very kind of like spinsterish without Watson. But then mm-hmm. you see other interpretations of her character, whether like on Sherlock or in other stuff. And she's kind of a, I'm trying to think of the word, but she seems like a bit of a flirt. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a woman of the world. A woman of the world, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but I agree with you anyway, getting back to your point. Watson brings the case to Holmes, and he is responsible in a certain way for the whole thing taken off because um, if he didn't get Percy back to London, if he didn't sort of trust Holmes' instincts, then this could have gone tits up in a different sort of way. <laughs> I just think of the notion now that uh, Barry Morstan, you know, having all these, like... Uh, uh, 
affairs and stuff and Watson's hanging around with Holmes, you know, and none the wiser, you know, and yeah. Holmes probably know Holmes would probably know if that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> and he wouldn't want to embarrass his friend, right? And, That's uh, right, yeah. She has a secret, she has a secret a, a, a arrangement. You take him out on your little adventures and I'll go and do my thing and... <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know. I can't see Holmes doing that to a friend. As kind of a, as you know, like robotic that he seems, uh, I can't see him doing that. Well, whatever. We're not going to ever see that, I don't think, in, in, in any official Conan Doyle story. We're not going to get hold, any revelation. Hold my beer. Here comes some fanfic. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll let you write it. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I think they're on, they're on point. You know, I went four out of five for the principles here because I found them interesting. I thought that uh, Holmes was doing a good job, particularly the second half of the story. I liked, I liked his involvement at Briarbrae. In what capacity? Um, just I knew as he and Percy and Joseph and uh, who else was there? Yeah, just the four of them. Uh, Watson, as they were walking around the property, I knew damn well that Holmes was keeping his cards close to his chest because he suspected Joseph. Like I got a note here in the margin of a page that this is definitely Holmes suspecting um, suspecting Harrison of something, like being too eager to give him clues, too eager to welcome him in, too eager. Like there, there was... There was something here, like, um, I'll just read this bit out to you. The young man led us to a spot where the top of one of the wooden rails had been cracked. A small fragment of the wood was hanging down. Holmes pulled it off and examined it critically. Do you think that it was done last night? It looks rather old, does it not? Well, possibly so. Uh, there are no marks of anyone jumping down from upon the other side. No, I fancy we'll get no help here. Let's go back to the bedroom and talk the matter over. <laughs> like, even if even if he did have a suspicion, he wasn't going to reveal it there, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and again, we just just uh, a later page on. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, right. Um, perhaps you'd like me to stay there tonight. This is um, Percy talking to Holmes about London. Well, I was just going to propose it. Well, then if my friend of the night comes to revisit me, he'll find the bird flown. We're all in your hands, Mr. Holmes, and you must tell us exactly what you'd like done. Perhaps you would prefer that Joseph came with us too, so as to look after me. Holmes then immediately says this. Oh, no, no, no. My friend Watson's a medical man, you know, and he'll look after you. We'll have our lunch here, if you'll permit us, and then we shall all three set off for town together. So Holmes wants Joseph to stay, and he's very, like, clear about that, you know? So the suspicion at this point for me as a reader is really starting to show on Joseph. Yeah. and I'm, re- I'm reminded of what that Goodreads um, reviewer said, that he had already worked out the location of the naval treaty, but not the perpetrator. For me, it was the opposite. Like, I figured Joseph was involved, but I hadn't... How the hell would you know that it was underneath the carpet, floorboard, uh, up against a heating pipe? Like, how would you have known? How could, how could anybody reading the story have figured that out? There's no, there's no clue or, or foreshadowing to that revelation. Well, he knew that that it was in the room, but he didn't know exactly where it was because okay, because maybe that's what he from, meant. Okay, yeah, because because he watches from the window and then he sees uh, Joseph open up the floorboards to get it out, right? And and that whole sequence that's what he describes when he comes back and has his uh, drawn out breakfast in front of Percy there. Yeah, yeah, no, I I got all that, but I, I felt like the reviewer was saying that he knew it was under the floorboard. Like I, uh, I, I don't okay. think he knew it was under the floorboards. I think the viewer might have exaggerated that a little bit. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you, um, wh- what do you make of that whole Moss Rose revelry that Holmes engages in, like, almost mid-sentence? He just kind of stops and smells the flowers, and, and he goes on about, you know, about how roses are 
you know, so beautiful and like it, it's kind of strange break from deduction to meditating over this rose, but it's kind of not unlike his violin indulgences, I guess, from time to time. They just sort of appear and but this this was kind of like it was kind of um, jarring because it's in the middle of one of his, you know, client conversations. If you notice, he's very cavalier in this story. He's almost arrogant to a point. I mean, we come in. We first, when Watson comes to get him for, for, for you know, to help on to for his advice on, and his assistance on the case, Holmes is already in the middle of some great experiment to figure out someone's in, innocence. You know, you'll, you know, if this color turns this color, then 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 it, it's the, it's the gallows for this guy is basically what he says, mm-hmm. and. Uh, He's, so he's already engaged in, in doing cases already since he's been separated from Watson since the marriage uh, with Mary. And I just realized the context of how he said that implies some sort of implies some innuendo there. But anyway, uh, so again, it's weird talking with headphones on. Uh, just a second here. I can hear you. I'm waiting to hear you. All of our listeners are waiting to hear you. Okay, good. All right, I'm just going on. All right, so basically, um, having been apart from Watson for some time because of the marriage, Holmes is busy solving cases left, right, and center. And while Watson, you know, he's attending his marital bliss and uh, the calm simplicity of his private practice in the country, when he watches himself at his door, Holmes is knee-deep in a case already, as I mentioned, and he's receptive to it. You get some of the old camaraderie back in the old habits. Holmes, you know, he's just holding the series, as, keeping it close to his chest. The whole thing with the rose is an, is an example of him, just like with the cheese at breakfast later on, with the actual naval treaty. Holmes is just in his own zone, in his own world, doing his thing, right? Stopping by, smelling the roses, not really... He, and I think what he's doing there is because he's trying... And this goes back to my theory is that he already suspected Harrison at the get-go because of how the kind of the side night comment that Harrison gives him uh, when, when they first meet. But I'll, I'll deal with that when we get into the perpetrators. Okay. Um, you sound like you're in a tunnel, dude. Can you... Uh, you sound like you're in a tunnel. Can you... Yeah, now, now you're underneath like a big mountain of laundry. This is uh, probably, technically, our worst episode of this entire show. I have to say, I'm surprised. I really am. Yeah, I'm surprised too. Unfortunately, I can't fix any of this stuff. Yeah. There you go. You're as clear as day. Whatever you've done, keep it. I put my headphones back on. Keep those fucking headphones on your head, man. The listeners need to hear the BFG. I got to hear the BFG. Let's uh, prowl, prowl forward. Come on. Yeah. So I think him stopping to smell the roses is just part of his cavalier attitude and just enjoying this case, breezing right, along. Okay. And he's also trying to, trying to create a very sort of like uh, uh, detached kind of 
he doesn't want to give away too much information because he's collecting all his evidence. And I just think it's just a way of him doing it. You could also see the the flowers and the ro- you know the rose and stuff is kind of like symbolic of the whole situation. Like every rose has its thorns, so every happy family kind of set up where you have like you know Annie and Phelps engaged, and then you have you know the 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 the, the, uh, the soon-to-be brother-in-law who Phelps seems to like as a as a nice guy because he can't perceive you know like. Uh, a wolf yeah. in sheep's clothing, yeah. you know, because he even says like, "Oh, Cameron, we bring Joseph along to, with us as well." Mm-hmm. I almost felt like Holmes was just gonna like, kick him in the shin underneath the tables or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you imbecile. Um, no, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, what what score did you give your principals? Let's let's just move past these guys. Yeah, well, just just to, just just as a final roll on Holmes, you know, I'm glad to see him. It's good to see him just merely cracking his knuckles over this politically volatile case. And, you know, going amongst all these lords and nobles and secret contracts, show his own flair for the dramatic with the breakfast shell game at the end there, as I call it. Uh, his intensity is all absorbing, so much that he's almost cavalier. He's curt with Annie Harrison and has made clear that she's annoyed and frustrated by his behavior. But he's also short and impatient at the least sign of inconvenience. Uh, they, they point to his asperity and impatience on whether Watson will accompany him on the case. But then Watson says, oh, no, I'm coming, I'm coming. And Holmes kind of gets in a better mood afterwards, right? Yeah. So there's some arrogance and slight resentment oozing from Holmes in this story, in my, in my, in my, in my feeling. And you think that um, works to his favor? So with, with the agency of Watson being very strong in this story and, and Holmes, uh, uh, you know, uh, showing some depth as well, even being, you know, kind of going back through the old routines, but still showing some depth. I gave this a very strong review of 4.5 on my score. Wow. Okay. Cool. I give this a I give it a 4.5 score on this review. <laughs> um, yeah, I see what you're saying. You gave uh, the yes. per, you gave the principles a 4.5. I, I went for yes. I went for four. I liked them. Um, I As you mentioned. Yeah, I didn't think there was anything here we haven't seen before, but I liked the way they both behaved. I liked that Watson was involved. Um, really, though, if you take Percy Phelps as a known guy in Watson's life out of it, Watson doesn't do very much. Like he, he, he just transports the guy out of walking and back to, back to London proper, you know, to see him at Baker street. He doesn't really do anything, but it's nice that the story comes from Watson because much like we had in, um, what was the other one that he brought to him? The engineer's thumb. I, you know, that was, that was some good agency. And we saw some agency as well in the part of the, yes. uh, the crooked or the, the twisted lip. So, you know, it was, it was good. Um, yeah, anyway, that's that's how I feel about that. Oh, yeah, so we got three stories now with, with, with Watson with a bit of agency, and, and those are always good. And I did like kind of like the, the subtle kind of redemption arc that Watson has in this story, in my view anyways. Yes, I do think that helping if, him out here look, does re- remove, erase, assuage the guilt that he may have had of treating him as a bit of a, a boner as a little kid. Yeah, I mean, he was probably like a... He was probably like a teen. Yeah, because Watson obviously was a middle class or, you know, upper middle class man who probably got lucky in a form There, folks, uh, we've been having some issues here with uh, local internet cable problems, so do uh-huh. apologize. Yeah. I don't think it's a transatlantic cable for a change. <laughs> no Gliglio Mar- Mar- Marconi involved here. No. And... Uh... Well, I suppose our our complaints really can't be can't be uh, leveled that heavily because there are people south of us in the Atlantic that have gotten some, you know, bigger hits than this with uh, hurricanes recently. So let's just be thankful that we can talk at all. 
That is definitely true. That's, thanks for putting it into perspective there, Scott. Yes, well, I had to put it into perspective because I was finding myself getting quite irritated, so much, in fact, that I went to the fridge and cracked a beer, and it's only 3.30 in the afternoon, which is early for me, but fuck it, here we are. And uh, yeah, we just we just finished talking about uh, the principles in <laughs> the Naval Treaty, which seemed to take us an hour, uh, and we're, we're, we're going to speedily get past and economically discuss the remaining uh, features of this story. You're ambitious, I like it. Well, you know, we got no other choice, man. You know, we, we got we got an audience that's been booing at us now for at least a twenty-minute interval. Yes, yes, we 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 need to we need to put on those uh, applause signs so that they can follow through. Yeah, we got um, we got to pull this thing back. Yeah, let's pull this. Let's let's roll this up now. So let's uh, jump into the investigation. Um, right. Structure is very important, I think, of this story. The aftermath of Watson's marriage and the slight estrangement that is suggested for some time afterward gives emotional weight to the investigation. By estrangement, of course, the estrangement between Holmes and Watson. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Watson following Holmes around on various strands of evidence, but then finding himself as a supportive wet nurse to the cursed Phelps makes him relevant to the story, whilst the minutia of the investigation handled by Holmes is more about the state of his mind and his zeal for his anti-crime crusade than it is about who was the perpetrator. That said, the case brings political turmoil and high stakes to the investigation, and it allows the retrieval of this naval treaty uh, to be kind of like the front runner in terms of driving the story. Style-wise, I found that ACD has some great character writing with this case. As I mentioned in the the principles with Holmes and Watson, uh, the ambiguity of Joseph Harrison from the get-go to Anne Morrison to some extent, the suggestion of her being in cahoots with her brother is one possible solution to this case, uh, the the red herring of uh, Mrs. Tangy and Mr. Tangy as well. Also, Lord, Lord Holdhurst is, is also a possible suspect thrown in there as well. Um, regarding to Annie, she isn't doting. She is loyal in a way that could be interpreted as cold by some. Uh, but this is not the case, of course, as her brother tried to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. Uh, the clues they are presented in her game fashion, but the reader interest in the tale is anchored by the Treaty of MacGuffin with the help of some strong character sketches. Uh, I found overall that the variety of characters in this story and the high stakes of which they are engaged in required some fleshing out of certain characters, and the lack of this on top of, un- of another pat resolution at the end, uh, to me, like in, after all this chaos, is really frustrating and anticlimactic. Um, you know, especially given all the fuss this missing treaty has generated, and the absence of such a strong denouement, I think hurt the overall narrative for me. Um, it's a case of another short story that should have been expanded to a novella, as we mentioned on several other uh, stories that we've uh, reviewed. And it kind of leaves me to withhold full marks, and I bestow it with a four when okay. it comes to the uh, the when it comes to the investigation. I agree with what with some of what you're saying there. Um, I, I do certainly see the uh, the lack of uh, developed denouement it's just kind of very rapid conclusion pat as you say here we go like this is where i want the info drop this is where i want the character development this is where i want to know why harrison did what he did and how it all worked and was it just truthfully a uh, a simple oh i got in debt so i wanted to see you know get an easy fix i mean there's other ways to make money you know than than betray your family your potential family and this i just i find it very weird like uh, i didn't like it i found it a little bit too quick and easy um, I didn't actually think the writing did 
uh, evolve as nicely as, as you intimate, though I certainly agree with what you're saying about the conclusion. Overall, I found the story quite dull. I found it boring, apart from the stakeout and some of the character interplay. Uh, I was bored that here we are again with another detective that Holmes has to deal with from Scotland Yard that's a bit of a moron. Like I just, I just kind of feel like these things are a bit staid and cliche now, and I, I didn't know what happened to the Naval Treaty. I did twig that the context was a little bit more interesting for a contemporary reader than it would be for me today but mm-hmm. you know and so i gave acd a bit of credit there but no i i wasn't with this story for a, for a long time I, I i didn't really like it that much i found it interesting to later learn that it was one of conan doyle's favorite 12 or 13 yeah i know i gave it a three overall for investigation because it wasn't bad and there were some cool moments towards the end um and i did like i liked some of the agency but Nah, it it didn't do much for me, man. Like this story, this is not one that I will recommend to people. So I went three out of five. Okay, that's fair enough. I, I think you know we have our views on that, and uh, I found structurally this worked really well as a mystery. There was it, it was different paths that it could have gone down, um, and I really liked the potential of that. But I think if the characters were more fleshed out and it was more of a novella format, I think it could have been a, a much stronger story. Okay, right. Uh, well, I'll I'll start off with perpetrators then. Perpetrator um, then. The yeah we yeah. we got a couple like... of perpetrators really because the commissioner's wife we're suspecting at the beginning and and her actions although she's cleared uh, you know her movements remain pretty suspect because both on the night of the treaty loss and when the police visit like she remains she remains pretty sketchy like running away from yes. the cops when they show up and you know maybe she was involved but maybe she wasn't like. She's very much wrapped up in this, and I know it's it's a red herring, but it's kind of a red herring that's never tied up. It's just kind of out there. Like, maybe she is still a guilty person, and I don't know if this is Doyle saying something about how, you know, uh, guilt is in the eye of the beholder or whatever. Like, maybe this woman was thinking she was being accused of or called up for something else that she had a guilt about. Like, who knows? But I found her role was kind of interesting, but ulti- hmm. ultimately it came to nothing. Percy um, deals with Joseph Harrison. Unlike yourself, I did not think Joseph Harrison was particularly well sketched. I thought his his connection to the family was interesting, but if you think about the stories we've already read, there have been family members who have done more interesting things to take advantage of their of their you know like think about um, what's his name Gosmer no what's his name from uh, Case of Identity. Um, Hosmer oh. Angel, like to me, he was Hosmer Angel. Yeah. He was more interesting as a family member that took advantage of another person in the family. You know, like I, I like I like I like the idea of proximity um, proximity abuse, if if I can use that expression. But I didn't think that um, Joseph Harrison was difficult to read. I didn't think he was particularly interesting. Uh, the most interesting thing he does is he throws on a, a black hood and, and has a kitchen knife at the window, and that ultimately comes to nothing. <laughs> By the times Holmes, by the times that Holmes leaves, uh, I, I'm feeling that he suspects Joseph quite a lot. Um, Holmes is readable, and I found that Joseph is readable as well. And because I've read The Speckled Band, I'm expecting a stakeout, and so I just kind of feel like it falls into some pretty predictable territory of stuff I've seen before and stuff that I'm going to be able to predict. No, I didn't predict that. Um, you know, he would end up having gambling debts and all of this, but it could really have been anything. It didn't matter why he did it. It's true, yeah. It's, so, it's, it's, no, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really much into him, the uh, perpetrator. Anyway, I went for a three overall. I mean, he's quick, he's convenient, criminal, but he's just an opportunistic slime ball, and we don't even uh, get to learn about the slime. Do you know what I mean? We don't even get to learn about the slime, and and I think that's a real, that that's a real bad. 
uh, letdown for a reader. So, yeah, I, I just went three, middling. N- nothing really great there for me. We were talking about the um, schoolyard bully uh, theme here and how, like, he's described by Watson, a plump and mischievous boy. It's a really good descriptor for Joseph Harrison. Um this is a man who has not learned to pass a threshold of adult responsibility and must predictably, like all relatives in these tales, rely on the fortunes of their sister, s- wives, or, or sisters in this case, whatever, to get by. He is a bit of a, a fail for me, as I feel like for a story with such forward momentum and urgency regarding the Naval Treaty and all that, like it, it just seems like he deserved more, quote-unquote, page time. Uh, despite the emotions of this of the needy parasitical Harrison has unleashed uh, due to this scandal... The enigmatic nature of his character is not enough to provide any kind of satisfying portrait of a man who would risk diplomatic relations with France and Russia and betray his own family for the sake of settling some debts, you know, from the stock market. Now, of course, we could also surmise that he didn't even know what the treaty was about. He just saw it on the desk and took it. And, you know, like he said, the words France and Russia and didn't really he doesn't seem too bright in that respect. He seems like he's resourceful in that way, but not not entirely clever. And he also, this is what I think Holmes was already so cavalier through this case on the get-go, with the moment he walks into Briar Bray. So you have this, the, the first encounter that Harrison has with Watson and Holmes. <clears throat> we were fortunate enough to catch an early train at Waterloo, and in a little under an hour we found ourselves among the firwoods and the heather of Woking. Briar Bray will prove to be a large detached house standing in extensive grounds within a few minutes' walk of the station. On sitting in our cars, we were shown into an elegantly appointed drawing room, where we joined in a few minutes by a rather stout man who received us with much hospitality. His age may have been near four, forty, nearer forty, forty than thirty, but his cheeks were so ruddy and, and his eyes so merry that he still conveyed the impression of a plump and mischievous boy, someone who overindulges, right? I am so glad that you have come, he said, said he, shaking her hands with effusion. Percy has been inquiring for you all morning. Ah, poor old chap. He clings to any of straw. His father and his mother asked me to see you, for the mere mention of the subject is very painful to them. We have no, we have had no ideals, details yet, observed Holmes. I perceive that you are not yourself a member of the family. Our acquaintance looked surprised, and then glancing down, he began to laugh. Of course you saw the jade monogram on my locket, said he. For a moment I thought you had done something clever. And it just seems like to me that was kind of like just, just kind of like this guy is just so into himself in his own world that uh, he thought that he could like take Sherlock Holmes down a peg, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so I think already Holmes had his suspicions just by this guy's very demeanor when he first encounters him. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think that the fact that he was smart enough to recognize the monogram that Holmes was looking at, like he knew he 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 got the deduction that Holmes was working on, and. For that matter, it proved to us that he was a clever guy, which made me think he could be a guy who could pull the wool over a brain-fevered imbecile. Yes, brain-fevered imbecile, indeed. So, as a whole, I gave a, a mark of uh, 3.5 to uh, Joseph Harrison. I, I found the setup of this character, as, and, I'm in, and when I said sketch earlier, I don't mean like the full detail of his character, the complexity of it. I mean just like the etching of his character and what the potential was for it. And I appreciated that in the narrative, but I feel that, in, in this, again, this is another character that I feel would have, would have much more complexity in a novella than a short story. Yeah, I do too, but I, I ask you this. Do you really want to read the novella of this story? I think it, I think, uh, it could be interesting, 
but I think they'd have to change the whole ending. <laughs> well, they'd have um, to they'd have to give us an ending. This is like a yeah. roller coaster ride that not a roller coaster ride. It's like one of those little lame fairground rides. That just ends like on a jolt, and you're like, oh, is that it's it? It's over. Okay, yeah, right. It. And then the carnies are looking at you through their cigarette smoke. Can you get off the ride? <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. that's not much those, to this, man. I don't. Those yeah. darn those darn those darn carnies, eh? Darn carnies. Uh, anyway, let let me because I'm sure you have more to say about it than I do. The environment for this story. Um, I, I like the environs here. I like Briar Bray. I like the uh, the train rides. I like the, um, the you know, the, the Holmes is in the stakeout underneath the trees, looking looking towards the uh, the bedroom. I like all that stuff. I think I think it's engaging enough. I like the yes. thought. I like the thought of these rooms being transformed into like almost nursing rooms or hospital rooms, so that Percy can wander around this big estate and and have like his comforts there when he needs them. I think it's interesting, but there's there's not a hell of a lot here. Like we've seen more interesting things of this ilk before and in previous stories. Yes, we've seen Doyle. Absolutely. We've seen Doyle push the boat out more in describing his environments that are similar to this. These country houses, these you know, kind of um, suburban estates. Like we've seen more interesting ones than these. They work. They're serviceable, but they don't really explode with with a description or a real character for me. So I went three point five. I went three point five with environs as well. Um, the foreign ministry office in Whitehall stands out. Why? Because there's a freaking visual aid for it. Uh, That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, and it is a stunning building. It's it's an incredible building. Yeah, the chaos in the streets of London in the evening as Tadpole and Tangi, Mr. Tangi, race the commissioner, race to the throng looking for the one who pilfered the treaty, reflects Phelps' own state of mind at the time. Uh, Briar Bray has little gothic charm and seems very paint by numbers from what we've seen so far. So I agree with you on that. That it's something pretty cliched uh, by this point uh using the floorboards to hide the treaty right under phelps's uh, et al's everyone else's uh, noses was bold of joseph and service the character in that way uh in, in his deception of the idea of like uh, you know the 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 enemy close to your heart kind of thing uh whitehall casts a neat visual of holmes and watson sitting on the expensive couches in lord holdhorst's offices whilst home deducts to the bottom of his boots that the statesman maintained his position constantly Due to his lower class origins, um, that he that he needs to keep in contact with all his constituents, right? So he's not a noble. Lord Holdhurst isn't a nobleman by uh, birth. He's a nobleman because he worked his way up there, and that's how he was able to get Percy into the office, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe because he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a generous, loving guy that he loves his nephew, who obviously is an imbecile, and he wants to give him a position anyways, right? So it's kind of the kind nepotism that Lord Holdhurst shows, and I think the Whitehall vi- vi- the visuals illustrate that. Um, it gives a kind of a, a, just an intriguing contrast between the, you know, the magisterial air of the Downing Street offices and, uh, you know, and the politicians who occupy them. So I, I kind of like that. I, a lesser score, I feel, because there could be some, you know, evocative imagery here that could really drive the themes of the story, especially with something with a big political scope. Um, but again, like the story itself, the, the political scope doesn't really come to anything, and the and therefore the background itself doesn't mean much either. So, yeah, 3.5. Do you remember a couple episodes ago I told you about this book that Sarah got me, um, or it might have been the last one, Sherlock Holmes in London, written by Charles Viney or Vinny. It's a photographic record of late 19th century London. Uh, yes. Kind of matched up with the story as well. Um, I'm just going to pick up on something really, really quickly you said about the foreign office. I mean, the building is incredible, and there's a couple of nice photographs of it in here, the Italianate-styled front 
And the inside, though, most remarkably, the, the, the main staircase of the Foreign Office, there's a photograph here from 1896, which would have been very close to the publication of the story. And it is an incredibly imposing, delicate, uh, like beautifully adorned, planted, you know, area, like this massive Italian-style staircase. And it's, it's mm. remarkable. And given all the foliage there hanging down, it, it has this kind of oppressive mythic feel to it. Like, he could have done all kinds of stuff if he wanted to really create theme in these environments, but we don't. We just get a chat of, like, a long corridor and this exit to the, the, the other side of the, the road. And I mean, it's just... I think there's a lot he missed he could have done here with environment and setting. He, absolutely. I, mean, I think a 3.5 is generous. images right now. I'm, yeah, 3.5 is generous. I might even waver to a 3, but I'll save a 3.5 because that's what I wrote down mm-hmm. at the time, so I'll go with yeah, that. Yeah, me too. But me I'm too. looking on Google Images right now, and like, wow, you are absolutely right. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Very Italian, mm-hmm. very neoclassical. Anyway, uh, I'll finish off then my part here with the supporting cast. Interesting characters uh, could have been more interesting, maybe, as you're saying, in a longer text. But I didn't want a longer text. I was just ready to put this one down. Um, I felt I felt it was long enough. I, I would like for an info drop to have been at the end instead of the beginning so that I got an explanation for why Harrison did what he did. Uh, maybe then I would have liked him a bit more because I didn't feel like, apart from being told through Revelation he's a slime ball, I didn't get to know why he had the slime and... It was just a little dull. And yeah, the nepotism, I felt, told me everything I needed to know about Horold Hurst. And it, the scene there was interesting, how he's described as like a nobleman that actually had nobility. But then there was nothing more to it than that. And uh, Yeah. But there is one thing interesting, though, that I wanted to raise as a question with you to see what you thought. Like um, a couple of the theories I was reading about, the, the, the Holmesian um, conspiracy theorists argue that the Harrisons were actually spies. Um, there's a note hmm. that there's a note here that suggests neither Annie nor Joseph display any typical Northumbrian physical characteristics in terms of their features, and this is kind of like a phrenology thing, but like gene gene typing the Northumbrians as they're described in the story, but the critics are saying actually they have no features, they share no Northumbrian features, which leaves room for a conspiracy theory. But if if they were, like, were they? sent to obtain the treaty uh and if so they're pretty bad spies because joseph was read very predictably you know i just yes i don't know how what you think about that like i guess he was motivated to steal the treaty presumably out of and holding out for a buyer because he had these gambling debts but he waited nine weeks to do anything with it like it just it just all felt kind of stupid and kind of like you said anticlimactic Anyway, I, I went uh, for for the secondary characters. Although there were a lot of them, I don't think any of them were really, really that good. So I went two point five. Also, I believe it's a. Um, um, I actually. Of them and how many there were in the story and what they could have offered, but again, it's potential, you know, in that way. Yeah. I went for three on on, on the dramatic person I have the story. Okay. Um, we got like going back to Annie Harrison. Um, you mentioned about the whole spy thing, and you notice this. This is this is a thing between Italy and England. The whole treaty. Yeah. Um, you notice that she's described with Mediterranean kind of. She because Watson says she has like Italian eyes or or something like that. Like uh, like so, is it possible that Annie could have also been kind of like a Mediterranean spy, like Marseille or or 
Marseille or Corsica, somewhere really to France. Maybe, you know? yeah. Um, it's very, very possible. Um, so that's a good point. Um, my other view of the supporting players, so Percy Temple Phelps, he's more of a story device and a fleshed-out character. Um, there is there is a hint that the author wants the reader to, quote-unquote, like his character, as the previously bullied diplomatist finds himself on the receiving end of Holmes' little eccentricities. Um, and, of course, Watson's schoolyard bullying. He's also portrayed as weak in spirit and constitution, and as we discussed uh, in many ways. And to an extent, one gets the impression that ACD wanted him to annoy his readers with his whinging and utter despair and find some dark amusement in Holmes's breakfast antics. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Forbes, the Scotland Yard greenhorn who takes Holmes' integrity to task but soon defers to the latter's superior detective skills quite easily. He's kind of a doormat, actually, Forbes. He's like, I heard from everyone else that you're this uh, detective that steals all our glory, and uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a fiend that way. And Holmes is like, no, I'm not. He's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's but, fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's cool, whatever. Yeah, Mrs. Tangy, the red herring, we talked about her, alcoholic, passive-aggressive type. We're made to dislike her instantly, and her presence on top of tabs and debts she accumulated over time offers possible avenues the story could have went down mm-hmm. mr tangy is a glorified coffee maker yeah but i gotta uh, interject there because and maybe it's because we have this perspective but she's only a red herring because we see her first like it, it's exactly. really it's really a dull way to plant it in it's like the scooby-doo red herring that you know the first person they suspect isn't going to be the criminal that's exactly it yeah it's it's Joseph Harrison going, I would have gotten away for it with those pesky kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, okay, that, that brings you to an 18.5 for the Naval Treaty. And I'm at a 16. So I'm looking back here. I haven't rated a story this low since The Stockbroker's Clerk. And if I had to, if I had to choose one of those two stories, I'd go for The Stockbroker's Clerk, to be honest. Okay, well, there we go. I would say this is a varied but... A varied, intriguing setup, but a whimper in the end. Yeah, but you, I mean, you know, 18.5 is still a good mark, you know, 16 still passes out of 25 as well. But look, finally, we've come to uh, our first musical selection, and I just want to, I want to go out on the record here and saying that I think both of these songs that I've selected for the Naval Treaty are um, maybe a little too good for, for the narrative. Um <laughs> And so instead of ask instead of asking you uh, door one or door two, I'm gonna I'm gonna pose it to you this way instead. Uh, I have a song here that represents Percy uh, needing in desperation the help of Holmes, or if you prefer, uh, a more sensitive choice of Percy's new feelings towards Joseph Harrison after uh, Holmes reveals that he indeed was the thief. Yes. I'm I'm with that one. The you'd latter. like you'd like to go for that one, okay? Well, after Percy discovers the truth about his would-be brother-in-law, you could say that they'll be strangers, or maybe he never knew him. And so this song is a song by Keen, which is a great little British number over here. Oh yeah, Keen, yeah. Yeah, uh, we might as well be strangers. I don't know your face, no. And as I say, I think it's maybe a little too good for this story and the relationship. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's, it 
It's a good song. I feel like this is like I feel like Peanuts, where like uh, Percy's walking around the grounds of the grounds of Briarbrae with a cloud over his head and walking in sadness. That's kind of what I imagine as well. We'll just let it play for a minute. We might as well be living in a different world. We might as well. We might as well. We might as well. I don't know your thoughts these days. This moment right here, listening to this song, might very well be the best moment of the Naval Treaty for me. <laughs> Maybe. Although I did, I did like researching the uh, Foreign Office Italian uh, staircase as well. I liked Holmes. Uh, pretty, uh, the Naval Treaty and the uh, breakfast uh, menu. I prefer that. The yeah, best. that was good too. Anyway, I'm right. Sure, I'm sure. I'm sure Mrs. Hudson was was in on that. I recall that when it was mentioned that she made a Scotch breakfast. I'm wondering, is this Hudson actually Scottish? Because then Bond and Sherlock Holmes have a uh, a similarity there. No, I don't. I don't think she is. But hey, okay. There's enough uh, saccharine, saccharine song sweetness for us. Uh, that's enough of Percy. Let's uh, move on. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on to climatic showdowns that also don't really come too much in the end. Well, mm-hmm. not in terms of being emotionally impactful, anyway. Uh, that's my preface to the final problem. And if people were looking forward to this story in the way that I kind of was, um, sorry to say that uh, I was a little bit disappointed with this one, even though I liked parts of it. Um, but I was, um, I thought it could be better executed, in my opinion. But the agenda behind the story and why it was written, I'm not surprised. But let's get into that. So the final problem was uh, first published in Strand Magazine in December 1893. It is actually ranked fourth best of of his stories by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. But he also liked the Naval Treaty as well. So you got to wonder. And he also (laughs) likes things the Speckled Band is one of his favorites too, I believe, if not his favorite story. I I think before we go any further, I I just got to get this. I think we got to say this, right? Like, okay. These guys, these writers, whether it's Fleming or whether it's you know uh, Doyle, like we've we've done this in the past, and particularly with Doyle, like doesn't owe us a damn thing. And his decision to kill off his character, bring his character back, it's it's totally up to him. You know, like he's he it, gives it, us it, great it, it, stories. But the Naval Treaty for me was just was just dull <laughs> and boring. I didn't like it. But I I totally get that some people out there love it. They love the lore of it. They love everything that it offers, and that's cool, man. That's cool. Like we're playing with opinions. Yes, your opinion's wrong, but you know that's okay. You're allowed to be wrong, gentle listener. You're allowed to be wrong. Uh, it, it, I I just feel like you know we we got to get that that brotherhood of feeling out there. You know, like. We we got different opinions. Some of them are right, some of them are wrong. But hey, I think that Keen music just triggered you. That's what I think was happening here. I think you're going all the brother you love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> all right, it's, cool. It's, it's it's Percy. He's made us all uh, sensitive and emotional. What a dick! <laughs> I got brain fever. Is that what you're telling me? You got brain fever as uh, brain fever as uh, Brian Wilcox says. 
Right, okay. Uh, right, back to you and your uh, discussion of the final problem. Dave Wilcox. Brian Wilcox? David Wilcox? David. 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 Well, even close. Okay. You, you, let uh, me know, you let me know when you want me to run the Benny Hill reel again. Yes, yes. I think it should be run several times during this whole episode, to be honest. This, was a, <laughs> this episode is a Benny Hill show so far. It is. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Minus, you know, the innuendos. Well, there's innuendos there, too. Yeah, we got, uh, so we got 40 minutes of recorded chat and about seven hours already online. <laughs> so moving forward with the uh, the Benny Hill show here, uh, or like Little Britain, whatever you want to call it, um, the final problem is exactly what it's about. It's Conan Doyle. He wanted to stop writing about his detective, about Sherlock Holmes, after this it was done. Killing the character off was the one way to get his career going because he felt that he was, and we know on the side that he's been writing all these little short stories that he's been published as well. We know that he wants to dive into Professor Challenger and and get those stories out there, and also write tales about uh, experiences in the army that he's had. So he really wanted to push forward, and he, I think he wanted to close the book on Holmes for good. But he also wanted to give him kind of like a, a great send off. And uh, I think he tries to do this and I think he almost succeeds in the final problem. But we can debate that later. Um, now, speaking of Benny Hill, I think we should uh, enter the Benny Hill music again as we get into our Goodreads. No problem. Here we go. Okay, over to you. All right. So on the Goodreads here, there wasn't a lot I could find individually about this tale, interestingly enough. But I, I found some quotes here, and uh, I'll uh, throw them at you and see what you think. So five words, perfect length for a cuppa. Now, oh, we, we encountered the same tea princess lady from the last time. Finally, the story I've been waiting for, she adds, sigh. I don't really know what to say, but it's probably the best of stories I've read. This is probably one of the best Sherlock Holmes stories. I have to admit that I cried a little bit toward the end. Conan Doyle was slash is a genius. All my respects to this fan. (laughs) Hey, you know what? It's only better because Cora wrote it. Yes, yes. Uh, Oh, you, Cora, yes, that's her name. So yeah. this was a very strong story up to the last couple of pages when suddenly the end, not using an exclamation point even because it was so anticlimactic, intellectually and emotionally unsatisfying. That person didn't like it. Hmm. So we had one person who loved it and one person who was sort of uh, disappointed. Um, I kind of I think I'm in the middle on it, my personal feelings, but that's what we got for the Goodreads anyway. Um, just to... go into before we light our pipes here um i don't know like i'm just trying to think of something that we could discuss here but 
I think Conan Doyle was slash is a genius, all my respects to this man, and that is the best of stories I've read. I don't think I can I can expand upon that any further. I mean, no, I don't. How can so. you? Yeah. How can you? I yeah. can expand. Okay, I tell you what. If you're looking for filler, I can I can fill something up. Um, <laughs> here's here's some three true facts. Okay, this story stunned the British public when it was re- when it was released in December of 1893. It stunned them. It cost the Strand twenty thousand readers. That's a true fact. It led to an outbreak of black armbands of grief. That's the truth. That's the actual truth. And so if there was ever, if there was ever evidence needed of just how big a figure Sherlock Holmes is, has become to the British reader, it's that. Like, they actually mourned his death in the streets. Wow. And the Strand newspaper, or sorry, the Strand magazine lost 20,000 readers. And yeah, fine, London was a huge cosmopolitan city. It, it, you know, I mean, it could probably afford to lose, you know, a, a large number of readers. But that is, that's an outstanding amount of people to just stop reading because Holmes wasn't there anymore. Yeah, what, what that either shows that they were really annoyed by his death or that they, okay, well, there's no point to read, read it anymore because they only read it for Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, why, why don't I, why don't I, uh, share a little bit more as well uh, about how the the story led to um, kind of a lot of well, pretty incredible theorizing in the Holmesian subculture. I, I can do that now or I can do it at the end, but I, I really want to do it because I think it's no, interesting stuff. let's deal with that. You have some extra sources that I don't have there, so let's... I do, uh, but, let, what, but what but, it means is that I'm going to be talking about parts of the story before we get there, but only in only in summary, you know what I mean? That's all right. I'll I'll dive into my summary after that, so it's all good. You sure? What? No. You know what? Why? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, I've got these things written down, and I'm going to refer in my book uh, to a couple of them because they're quite. Here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do, and we're kind of doing this on the on the fly, but you know, it makes it fun this way, almost like improv. I'm going to do my summary, and if you have a point that you have there that that kind of connects to my summary, or you want to interject or an extra fact that you think will work. Just chime in, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of like put it together in, in that fashion. Well, I I don't have anything of that nature. Uh, all I have is like theories about what went on in the story uh, after the fact. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to be inter- okay. I'm not going to interfere once your summary starts. All right. Well, what I'll do then is I'll I'll just lay out my summary, and then yeah. we'll. we'll... We'll discuss some some of the theories that came from that, and then uh, building on those theories, then we can we, we can then uh, light, light our pipes again here. Excellent, and I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to accompany your your summary with uh, a violin sonata by J. S. Bach, number four in C minor, which I think fits the final problem quite nicely. All right. And no, this is not one of our musical selections. It's an extra, just to uh, titillate. <laughs> I think you'll. F- Go ahead. The tone is set right away in the first paragraph of the final problem. Why the regret? Who is Jim Moriarty defending the memory of? What is going on? I'm sure all will make sense in the end, right? Holmes walks into Watson's private clinic with cut knuckles and an iron, slightly paranoid resolve. Air guns, guys. Air guns everywhere. And straight up tells Watson, So, all this time, all these cases that we've been working on, well, some of them may have been connected. Yeah, yeah, I know. Crazy, right? I mean, despite of suggesting the retconning at the most convoluted all-get-out fashion, I'm here to tell you, my dear friend, that a man who was virtually my evil twin is hunting me down. And probably, you know, you, you as well now, thanks to my slightly overzealous inquiries to bring down his organization. 
Yes, 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 I know. You have many questions, but this guy is legit. And say what you are doing next week. And say, what are you doing next week? Mary's away. Well, that is super convenient. Oh, well, you can leave your practice for a bit. Okay, great. Let's go to Europe and allow ourselves to be chased down and eventually walk into traps set by this <laughs> criminal mastermind. Here's your arrangements, and I'll just climb over your garden wall. Alley-oop. Laters. <laughs> and it almost during, happens that quickly, too. It almost happens that quickly. So during this tense but romantic exchange, we get a suspenseful flashback of Watson and Moriarty's first face-to-face, and I'm like, OMG, scared cat face girl, I'm covering her eyes emoji. Mor- Moriarty has no chill. <laughs> Holmes is close to bringing down Moriarty, but may not be able to do so now that Moriarty's onto him. Carriage accidents are arranged. Fall, bricks fall, hired goons, hired goons, and the, pl- and the plague homes through, and they plague homes through throughout London as he goes from Mycroft's to uh, Watson's for safety. His two safe spaces. <laughs> so recruiting Mycroft like their own little A-team, our dynamic duo hops carriages, changes license plates, loses tails, and hops on a train to Canterbury to avoid Moriarty's smirch operatives. Sadly, Watson does not get to share a, comp- a compartment with Danielle Bianchi. Instead, he gets an Italian <laughs> priest as his traveling companion. Spoiler alert, it's Holmes in one of those Mission Impossible disguises. I'm just waiting for a moment where Holmes will pull off his face at some point, and he's been Tom Cruise all this time, but never... <laughs> Comes to my chagrin. I'm start. I'm starting to think that the box not necessary anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely contrasting. Uh, so, uh, what's the word? Uh, juxtaposing. Mm-hmm. What, what was that term? The musical term? No, you got it. Ca- Counterpoint. Well, mm. Yeah. Counterpoint to your point. Counterpoint to my point. Yeah. And purpose. So, yeah. So to my chagrin, Tom Cruise doesn't reveal himself. Uh, the pair, they disembark at Canterbury, and already like the Winter Soldier or the T-1000, Moriarty is moving with evil purpose to the train <laughs> station, just as Holmes and Watson hoof it over to another train, taking them to a ship to take them to the continent. Brussels and then to Strasbourg, where Holmes gets a telegram from the London police that Moriarty's empire has fallen, but that the villain has eluded capture and is coming after him, and this time it's for revenge. Knowing that Moriarty's done for, he uh, if he returns to London... Uh, Holmes plays this himself and a volunteering Watson as bait, and we get a Dracula-like chase through Alpine Europe, leading to the heights of Switzerland. This chase, I must remind you, takes take, takes a breather for a bit, and Holmes and Watson have some last-minute bromancing in the Rhone Valley. But this comes to a head in Meringen, a tiny village where Holmes and Watson are told by the local innkeep how to hike over into the next town without being observed. But stay away from the falls of Reichenbach... I was going to say cue ominous music about the falls of Reichenbach, but I guess that's ominous. <laughs> well, it's Swiss, right? Yeah, it kind of has that uh, that kind of like juxtaposition of suspense and happiness that like, uh, do you know where Christmas trees are grown kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, Holmes did not stay away from the falls of Reichenbach, however, and while attempting to travel around it, the duo received a messenger boy from Meringen with a telegram for Watson telling him that an English woman who has just arrived in town is dying and requests an English doctor. Watson, unable to conceive of the idea of a trap, decides to head back t- to town because plot. To Watson's utter shock sigh, there is no Englishwoman, and he sent no message. The boy belonged to Professor M. Watson doggedly makes his way up to the falls of Reichenbach to find his friend no longer standing against the sh- rocks in the sublime backdrop of the Great Falls and all the other imagery that would make Wordsworth or Shelley jizz their pants. <laughs> Putting on the detective hat for the first real time in all these stories, Watson deduces the epic struggle that led Holmes and Moriarty to plummeting to their deaths down below. A great detective, a great character, had to give his life to stop the utter antithesis to his own nature. Sad. That was my Donald Trump ending. Yeah, it's quite right because that's the only t- that's the only time that um, Watson actually is forced to figure out what happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
How did he die? I, I, I pictured like a Sherlock Holmes, like, like Mufasa in the sky. Good for you, boy. Good for you. Or something, or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we probably shouldn't be taking the piss out of this story because it, it, it's, you know, it is very important in, in the canon. And I feel it that is. we've earned the right to have a bit of fun with this because, you know, we're, we're more expert on this than most readers. But um, at the end of the day, you know, lovers, not experts. But I guess what I mean is... We've come a long way in this journey, and, and we need to allow ourselves to have some fun along the way. The final problem is a serious story, and it has a serious part to play in the Holmes, you know, mythos. Yes. However, however it, it isn't necessarily a perfect story. And no. as an investigation, as a Sherlock Holmes story, you could actually say that it, it is a bit of a failure. But... Given the structure and the style of these Holmes investigations, and given the fact uh, that Doyle here wants to end his character and exit stage left, then it probably couldn't really be a normal investigation. I mean, I don't yeah. know. How, I don't know how you feel about all that, but that's the one thing that I, I felt I was battling with while scoring these components was the fact that. This is not an investigation. It's it's like an episode. Uh, it's it, it's like a it, it's an episode of a like a series finale. You know, like it's it's yes. all it, the whole thing is denouement. The whole story is denouement. Like we pick up yes. as the story starts to end, and it's just stretched out over a series of scenes and countries, right? Yes, there. I'll go into it later, but I feel that. Um... If Moriarty was introduced and teased throughout all the stories in, in the beginning, I think uh, the the impact of this story would be much stronger, and it, I think I think it would be a better story because of it, uh, despite you know it's uh, it's um, standing you know in the Sherlock mythos as you said, mm-hmm. um, but of course the character Moriarty was created for the sole purpose of killing Sherlock Holmes, uh, kind of the the antithesis to his very being, and. Uh, you gotta give credit for for Arthur Conan Doyle for for doing that, but um, I think there was some potential with Moriarty as a character, and I feel, and again, we're going into the perpetrator side of our pipes here, mm-hmm. but I feel that um, there was potential unrealized with this story. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind if you want to talk perpetrator first. We can do these things in different order, but I feel that one of the one of the reasons why the the, the British public was stunned is probably not just because they lost a great character that they loved, but I mean, like for me personally, I was stunned in a sense. I was stunned that, you know, here we are, 24 stories in, two novels in, and the guy who, or Sherlock Holmes dies after saying, oh, this guy's been around for so long, he's a master criminal, like I've been fighting against him for months, and I've been trying to trying to deconstruct his network and reveal him to the police, and we have to do it this way, we have to do it that way, we, we can't just sort of arrest one and not the others, we have to wait for this trap that I've laid to be totally set, and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm pissed off, Josh, i got to be honest with you, I'm pissed off because this, like, and I, I think that part of the, the reaction that the public had at the time was like, fuck, Doyle, fuck, you could have, you could have introduce this guy a little bit like a sleazy shadow in an alleyway looking down at you know at, at Lascar's opium den you could have had a little a little guy here or there if if he's going to be mythology you know if he's going to be the smoking man of this entire this entire canon then you got to yeah. you got to give me something before the 24th story before you're going to kill off your central character tell me why he's important don't yes. te- don't tease me this way you know it, it's it's a bit of a letdown 
and you got to give kudos to Hollywood, I think, and the BBC in general, and all every adaptation of Holmes now that you see that they build up Moriarty in a much better way, in my opinion. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think they give they give more more strength, more adhesive to the whole canon by by allowing Moriarty to creep in and out of the storylines. Because in yes. truth, in truth, he like for for such a for such a central character he exists only in three stories this one the adventure of the empty house which marks the return of sherlock holmes and the valley of fear those are the only stories that moriarty is going to show up in and much like the baker street irregulars who are only in a couple of different things too it kind of makes me wonder like why the hell should the average reader care about moriarty no i agree with you like why should they care about his character because because the only the only way that that would apply is if they, if we're if we're a, a a modern day reader. Because you ask anyone who is the archenemist of Sherlock Holmes, and they say Professor Moriarty. And back then, if you ask someone that question, they'd be like, Arch nemesis? What? Yeah. He had he had a number of people that he fought against, or he was trying to bring down. Right? Is it Roy Lott? Is it Joseph <laughs> yeah. Harrison? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Right? Yeah. Is it uh, Irene? Irene yeah. Adler is probably more more known in the mythos. Like, oh, did Irene Adler come back or something? Or you know, like it's just back anyway. then. I mean, not well, now, of course. You know, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to suspend. I'm gonna have to suspend my criticism a little bit until I read the Return of Sherlock Holmes. Until I read uh, the Case Book of Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes, because maybe in those stories we learn that although he's not involved in them, we learn that Moriarty was a figurehead in some of these previous stories. And if if I get that retrospective acknowledgement then i'll be a little bit more satisfied because right now i'm reacting as a contemporary and thinking this guy can't be that important to me don't make me feel like i have to care about him yeah absolutely yeah exactly it just comes out of nowhere yeah so i'm not i'm not totally banging doyle yet because i realize that i'm coming at this retrospectively and i'm not coming at it as a contemporary reader so if he's going to tell me more about Moriarty later that he was important for different reasons, then I'll then I'll accept them then when I get them. But right now, I'm pissed off. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and uh, I will wait till the, to, to, you know for this three parter to conclude. I I guess well, it's a two parter. I guess wouldn't it? Uh, you have the empty house coming up uh, in the Return of Sherlock Holmes, and then you have this story, which is the kind of the the the, the season finale. I yeah, guess we, yeah. you, you could say this is Mulder in the boxcar, and they're and they're lighting it on fire. Uh huh. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> this is yeah. That's right. <laughs> X Files reference for those back at home. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about if you watch the X Files. Correct. Or when I do other season finale of the X Files usually. Anyway, do you want to talk Moriarty or... a little more? Yeah, so we'll go into. I think Moriarty is uh, is a branching point here where I think we'll go. We'll light our pipes and move forward. Okay, pipes are lit. I've done them. Okay, I'll take a nice drag here and go. So in terms of the principles, my overall mark was a, was a four. Okay. And I'll go into this. Uh, I found Holmes' zeal to bring down Moriarty was very inspiring in this story. His fear for his friends and for his own life gave him some... Three dimension, three dimensionality. It provides faucets of his character that has yet to come to the surface so far in these adventures. Now these 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 emotions and these feelings come up all of a sudden out of nowhere, just like Moriarty does, and that, and I think that's fitting in that way. Um, he gave his own life to end the career of his ultimate nemesis 
again, ultimate nemesis that I'm. I, yeah, we're just uh, meeting. Our, they were just meeting. He establishes the passionate champ itself as the passionate champion of justice that Watson always crows about him to be. So his desperation and fear is noted, you know, when he's taken breach shelter from assassination at Watson's house. Um, he has that automaton focus, which tends to humanize him and make him appear callous. And he's aware of this, but you see in that final letter to Watson that, and I give credit for Moriarty for letting him stand there and write that letter, um, which was cool of Moriarty in a kind of a respectful, that was cool. yeah, villain kind of way. And it's interesting that I mentioned earlier, you know, that probably Watson's life is in danger as well, and Holmes, but really Watson wasn't really important to this whole storyline. He's more there as a witness to what happened. And it didn't seem that Moriarty was interested in bringing Watson into the equation at all. Um, it was just between it was mano and mano, more you know, and then, then the two versus them. And he, in fact, arranges a whole plan to get Watson to come down to Moringan. I know that was, uh, and, that was very weird. Like, do you think that Holmes? Well, this this is part of the thing I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. The, the whole theory is like, do you think Holmes knew that this was this was totally him going to his death, like a final showdown? Like, and if so, if he did know that, like, why the hell did he bring Watson along? And also, like, why did Moriarty let him live? Like, why did he not just kill Watson? Like, it didn't make sense to me. I guess that way the story wouldn't be told, right? If Watson was dead. He entered in the empty house. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true, yeah. Anyway, Analog. okay. The third-person narrator, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I said the final letter to Veiled, even though it's thinly veiled, it's, great, it's kind of a great-to-know-you, thanks for putting up with me kind of feel to it. He even sends Mary his regards, assuring that Watson will maintain his happiness even after he's gone. Um, which I think lends a lot of fanfic ideas about Watson and Holmes being unrequited love and all this. Stuff. And, you know, I'm happy that you going to do what I have to do kind of thing. And it's kind of romantic in that way. Um, in this story, Watson is a bystander caught up in big events. He is he's in service to the plot conveniently brought along so that Watson can witness the moments leading up to Holmes' death. The fact that he abandons his friends due to the urging of his own countrywoman rings false and upsets the emotional ground of this denouement in Holmes' career because I feel that Watson would not have abandoned Holmes at that moment. And the two of them could have took on Moriarty easily. You know what I mean? And Watson probably had, like, his yeah. gun or something. And I don't know. It just seemed like uh, that was uh, manufactured. Uh, it, 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 it rung false, as I said. Um, so in the steps on Watson's behalf and some rushed but well-written passages confirming Holmes' resolve and making him into a hero that manages not to be cheesy in that fashion. I give it a final score of four, the principles. They were probably, probably the strongest part of the story for me, actually. Okay. My mark was also a four for the principles. Um, Excellent. I don't, I don't actually think I have... I don't think I have anything to add, really, to what you said. Um, Holmes is enjoyable. I like the fact that he's on the back foot for a change, but he also then goes to the front foot and then the back foot again. And I like Watson. I like I like the little you know mountain bromance. I think that's interesting. But uh, again, I'm going to say more about that when I get to the investigation. I agree with what you're saying. The principles work well here, but they've been more outstanding than this as a partnership. And but a four is a very good, respectable mark. So yeah, four for me. Yeah. Yeah, some clumsy writing, I think, made Watson go down back to the town, and I just don't think that worked out, and I think it kind of hurt the – giving me a, like a much higher score than I wanted to. So. Well, then this is it, right? This is why I feel as though Holmes 
was kind of moving, knowing exactly what was going on because he was there when he received the letter. And it's not like he's just going to let Holmes be alone. Holmes, if, if he suspected, as he should have, that that letter was false, you know, why, why did he just let Watson go? Like, why, why didn't he say to him, you know, like, no, Watson, stay with me, this nonsense. Like, this is obviously a ploy. Maybe what? Maybe Holmes had the, the the letter sent. I don't know. It's possible. Well, there's some theories I'll talk about uh, when when we get to the end of our investigation. As for me, in investigation, I, f- I felt like this was a really nicely written story. It was taught in places, but again, it was more of a follow and respond story. Like there there was no single crime to deduce, so it's very no, diffi- it, difficult it to score. It wasn't a mystery story. Like it wasn't no. Mulder and Scully solving an X File no. case. This was them on the run with the alien bounty hunters coming after them. You know what That's I mean? That's right. Yeah, this was, as you said, a season finale or a series finale. And for that reason, I couldn't score it in terms of like you know the way deduction was worked and all that. There was only a little bit of that, a little touch of that here and there. So, uh, although it's difficult to score, it's more of a film episode. Um, I I decided to look at it stylistically. And did I like the writing? Did I like the way Mm. that I was led as a story to be engaged? And the answer to that was yes, I did. And so Mm. I I, I tabled or I shelved the fact that I wasn't able to score it as a true investigation that we have been doing. And instead, I looked at it more stylistically. I didn't score it down, in other words, because it didn't have certain stuff. I looked for merit where I could find it. And I found a lot of nice writing in here. I particularly like the the kind of pace that we got picked up on. And although I'm disappointed that this character of Moriarty was introduced, just sort of dropped right in. Um, once I got over that, and I suppose once Holmes got over the back fence, uh, the story started to impress upon me a little bit more. And I was more caught up with it. And for that reason... You know, I, I thought it's a it, it's a good read, and it's one that I would recommend. I don't think it's a gr- I don't think it's a great Sherlock Holmes investigation, in the true sense of our pipe no. scoring. But I think it's good enough to warrant a three point five for me. So I feel like there are elements here that definitely deserve more of the like the description of the mountains and sort of the falls themselves. But there's still clumsiness here. You said it, clumsiness here, and that clumsiness, <laughs> the clumsiness, the convenience, and the sort of I, I, I'm just at the end of my race. I just want to spit this story out. Let's let's let him go down in a fall, and let's see what happens. I, I feel like Conan Doyle's tired. He just wants it, to wrap it up. So I went three five. Yeah, I went three five as well. Oh, I did you? The story okay. has yeah, I did. I found the story had strong foundations. Uh, our ACD intended this to be Holmes's swan song, and the entire adventure is crafted to that purpose. You know, you get that great. Op- Opening teaser with Holmes on the run from Moriarty, who, who we are given a quick info dump that makes his menace ephemeral. But mm-hmm. unlike the high stakes of the Naval Treaty, this urgency to me is very forced. Now, you see, the high, stakes of the, of the high stakes of the Naval Treaty kind of interested me. And we were the opposite on that. And you seeing that you really caught up into the suspense and the urgency of this situation. Whereas in this story, I found that the urgency to was 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 forced here uh, on the basis that we don't know who Moriarty is. Why are they on the run? It's just kind of confusing from a reader's perspective in that way. And I couldn't quite get, I guess, the, the threat that Moriarty was 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 presenting. Right. Um, I just found that, like, the stakes need to be either stakes in this whole endeavor, then those stakes need to be shown earlier on. And I think that really hurts it stylistically as well. Um, the passages are taught and 
well written, but the momentum barrels out of control, and it's just on this like this rickety train because it's just like going towards its final destination. But the, the but but even though it's a rickety train, the tracks are built so clearly, and the the tracks are changed over so e- easily by the plot that the characters are just kind of going along with it, you know. And it, it just it just felt that like it just wasn't as clever as some other stories. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the mystery the mystery part of it i'm just talking about how they're how they're written and uh um that was a bit of a fallback for me um as i said strong foundation shoddy brickwork that threatens to tumble like homes and moriarty on the falls of reichenbach Mm. um final summation on that a great tease and forced emotional climax that ends anticlimactic the agenda of this story is just too apparent and despite some suspenseful packaging and great character moments for Holmes. 3.5 3.5 yeah you're right it's like it's like a poorly written episode of a tv show that we really love like a bad end a bad ending to a season that you know or a series potentially that yeah uh, that we we expected more from it's, yeah yeah like it just seems like really that's it and yeah and the fact and the fact that like there there's a lot of plot holes i guess you could call it in, in the common term now that 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 just shows how engineered the meeting of Holmes and and Moriarty on the falls of Reichenbach was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, should I uh, say a few words now about these these theories that the the um, Sherlockians yeah, uh, have gone on and and espoused from this story? Please espouse. And uh, you know, I, f- I feel like <clears throat> in doing this and talking about this, um, I'm I'm stepping into territory that I am not myself terribly comfortable in. Because I'm not, and nor would I, nor would I claim to be, um, one of these Sherlockians, one of these guys who um, you know cares what color bow tie the cabbie had when he took Holmes up to blah blah blah, right? Like I don't give a shit about any of that stuff, and yeah. I don't care. I, I don't need to know that the redheaded league happened three months in the life of Sherlock Holmes before um, you know a different story. Like that, that, that stuff don't matter to me, and so. And I think that's good because that's the amateur touch of our show, right? We can be critical in a way that these guys can't be. Yeah, you can't you can't be a tricky about it. No. We, you know, we can't have like Arthur Conan Doyle or I don't know Benedict Cumberbatch or someone saying that you guys need a life or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. So anyway, uh, I'm going to read I'm going to read some of these theories to you, and uh, I'm going to play the theme from A Single Man by Abel Korzeniowski because um, it's it's quite a nice violin based theme and I, I just like it. I'm I'm trying to find any opportunity to use music here today, you might have guessed. So yeah, I've got a couple to offer you, okay? These theories that um, sort of come out of this and become central to the lore of Sherlock Holmes higher criticism. And I'm gonna ask you to pick. I've got uh, I've got a few. Uh, let's go through Moriarty is imaginary. Moriarty is innocent. Moriarty lives. I also have to offer you Holmes is guilty. Holmes killed the wrong man. <laughs> or Faith of the Fundamentalists. Okay. I'm curious to see about... Um, Mori- Sorry, what was the first one? Moriarty... Moriarty is imaginary. Uh, yeah, I'm curious to see how that goes along. All right. First, there is the Moriarty is imaginary mm. school. Benjamin Clark, in The Final Problem, an essay, proposes that Holmes staged the entire affair to obtain a three-year rest cure for his drug addiction. Irving 
L. Jaffe's essay The Final Problem in his book Elementary, My Dear Watson, argues that Holmes imagined Moriarty and traveled to the falls bent on suicide. A.G. MacDonald in Mr. Moriarty concludes that Moriarty was invented by Holmes to explain his lack of success in an increasing number of cases. Holmes's ego would not allow him to admit that ordinary criminals had outsmarted him, so he invented a master criminal. T.S. Blackney re- uh, refutes at some length the hypothesis hmm. advanced by a distinguished writer, whose name may not be divulged, that Holmes and Moriarty were actually the same person. Bruce, you gotta, sorry, go you ahead. Gotta, I was going to say, you got to appreciate now, in, in retrospect, after hearing that, um, at least the first uh, two series of the BBC Sherlock, because they did play with those ideas a lot. They did, yeah. Moriarty. Yeah. So I, I give them props for that. And there's a lot of Easter eggs, too, beyond that. But, uh, yeah, interesting. Cool. Continue. Jerry Williamson concludes that Professor James Moriarty was, in fact, Professor James Holmes, an older brother of Sherlock's, a younger brother of Mycroft's. There was something very strange. The flight from England must have been made to give James a chance to escape with his life. Acting as a decoy, Sherlock Holmes fled, vanished, and lived on the funds of his honest brother, Mycroft, until the gang was gone, and James a free but broken man. Just as he found compassion for James Ryder, the detective found compassion for his criminal brother. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Crackpot, but interesting. Oh yeah, very crackpot. Um, Shall we try a different one, then? A different theory. How about Moriarty is innocent? Moriarty's innocent, okay. The innocent school is perhaps akin to the Moriarty is imaginary view. Daniel Moriarty suggests in the peculiar persecution of Professor Moriarty that uh, Moriarty was persecuted by Holmes as revenge for Holmes's being forbidden to woo Moriarty's daughter. Now, <laughs> like, this is where the shit goes off the rails for me, right? Like, I'm reading all of these these indexes and these appendices, and people just create shit. They just create it. Like... <laughs> And then they, 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 they publish articles and like people pay them to write this. Like this it's is like Wiki, it's like yeah. Wikipedia. It's like your friend who wrote a Wikipedia article about himself. Yeah. Anyway, uh, get this. Mary Jaffe in Yes, Dear Little Medea. There wasn't. There was and is a Professor Moriarty. That's the title of an, an essay. Contends that Moriarty was wholly innocent, a bystander killed by Holmes at Reichenbach, while Holmes was coked to the gills. And that Moriarty and his reputation were smeared to preserve Holmes. Maybe this needs a Benny Hill music. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Listen, listen. I gotta share this one with you, man. I've been I've been okay. waiting I've been waiting on this for a while, okay? This yeah. is the faith of the fundamentalists. Okay? Okay. Here we go. Finally, there is the fundamentalist school, which accepts that Holmes indeed died at the falls. Anthony Boucher. You, rem- you remember that name? Anthony Boucher the, of uh, the, the uh, disgruntled, uh, jealous critic of uh, Ian Fleming. <laughs> That's right. In his essay, Was the Later Holmes an Imposter? suggests that after Holmes's death, Mycroft replaced him with his cousin, Sharonford. What do you think of that? Uh, uh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> that, that's all that Boucher writes on it. <laughs> I, I I really don't take any more stock into what Boucher has to say. That's for sure. <laughs> well, continuing with that, 
Um, Monsignor Ronald Knox, in his seminal studies in the literature of Sherlock Holmes, contends that the entire post-Reichenbach canon was made up by Watson to supplement his income. (laughs) Interesting. So that's Holmes has been dead all along. That's right. uh, Ah, interesting. Okay. And now we've got... a question. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, did you finish the uh, complete Sherlock series yet, the uh, BBC? Yes, we did, yeah. So Sherinford was the name of the institution where Euros Holmes, the sister that they created for, were they reading fan theories? I don't know, for, for uh, Mycroft and, 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 and Sherlock. So Yeah, it's, that was terrible. That was a terrible yeah. end to that series. That series was shit towards the end. But anyway, that's a different yeah. story. Uh, Holmes is guilty. Here's the last one I'll read, okay? Another theory coming out of this, Holmes is guilty. There's widespread school of Holmes planned it all. The idea is first suggested by Walter Armstrong Jr. in The Truth About Sherlock Holmes, who proposes that neither Holmes nor Watson was fooled by Moriarty's note and that Holmes had anticipated a confrontation and took comfort in his knowledge of Baritsu. A similar view is expressed by W.S. Bristow in The Truth About Moriarty and by Gordon Speck in Holmes, Heroics and Hiatus, A Man to Match Swiss Mountains. Albert and Myrna Silverstein, in Concerning the Extraordinary Events at the Reichenbach Falls, expresses the darker view that principally because Holmes could not obtain sufficient evidence to convict Moriarty, he enticed him to follow him to the falls for the express purpose of killing him. And in The Supreme <laughs> Struggle, Nicholas Utekin writes, quote, The 56 years old professor, army coach, and ruined arch-criminal probably never even saw his assailant, Sherlock Holmes, before he was sent spinning to an instant death in the gorge below. Uh, some of these are good and some of these are just like, I guess you could see it that way, but why? It's, well, it's, yeah, that's, that's how I feel too, Josh. Like, I kind of think that this is, it's beyond a hobby for some of these critics and writers who are just kind of like, let's, let's make up something to justify my own article and its existence, you know, my own scholarship. It, it just kind of seems silly that it's, it's like a, uh, it's like a bucket. Like I'm, I'm reminded of a of a of a um, what do you call it? A, a Rex Murphy. You know Rex Murphy, right? The great journalist of a Rex Murphy. Um, he's talking about the Star Wars films once, and he's like, "Here's yes. the, here's how you understand the plot of a Star Wars film. You get a bucket of eels. You take a stick. You stir the bucket of eels, and." then you pull out any random assortment and throw it on the screen, right? That, that's what he said. And I kind of feel like these creation conspiracy theories and different views of things and alternate histories, like they go beyond a reader and they even go beyond a scholar. And they just, they're just like people who are creating things to better understand or interpret, you know, their own projections onto it. I, I, I don't know. Like it just seems a little, a little wasted effort, you know? It does. It does. But I guess, you know, people are into their fandoms as they are into religion are. these days so and it's who, just, who am i who am i to shoot them down yes their opinions that's are totally... wrong but that's different <laughs> yeah they can have opinions they just not they're just not right they're just not right um anyway so yeah that's uh, that's us then done the principles and investigation for the story um do you want to say anything I mean, do you want to say anything about that? Because, you know, the variety and the, uh, the intensity of this Holmesian scholarship, it just it continues to amaze me. And, you know, legions of critics, uh, enthusiasts, you know, like they, they argue and they, they debate and they converse about all these little fine points. And they, de- they, de- they, they declare over the minutiae of the canon. And um, like, I, I just don't uh, the academic disagreement and like kind of the, the cultural 
uh, disagreement over over the stories and what's real now and what was real there like it doesn't do much for me really and maybe that's because i'm not that thrown into it but even the things i am thrown into i, think I, I don't I think need that level i i think it's because holmes is i Sherlock holmes i think was the first kind of character to almost like a proto comic book hero um, that stimulated this kind of conversation and discourse, but because he's been around for so long, people take it academic. Take, people take Conan Doyle's work as academic more so than just as simple as like pulp cultural serial. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and not to put down Arthur Conan Doyle's work or anything like that, but Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's not Tolstoy. It's not Dostoevsky. It's not. Jane Austen, you know what I mean? Like I it's, do, yeah, I understand that. Like there's a more it, populist bent to it, but because it's been around for so long, it's it's in the literary canon, and that's why there's still a lot of theories and academics writing about it because it's taken. It was written at a time in society that's no longer here anymore, and people are academics are studying it, but it also gives excuse for the for the fandom to continue and grow over time and time as well, with so many adaptations and all this sort of thing. So. Mm. I'm not surprised that there, these theories do come up here because these people who are literary theorists who come up with Sherlock Holmes, they got to come up with something that that cannot be taken from the text. Any like, if the text has already been poured out for every bit of from. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, we're we're not exactly we're not exactly pulling new things out of these stories, are we? I mean, we're we're bringing our slant to it, but we're not we're 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 not excavating anything new. So I, all all I'm saying is is that the um, these theories exist because people need to come up with reasons to support the academic study of of this literary character Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and it's, I mean, but, you know, the... But the well is ran, it's been well run, 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 yes. run dry, and that's why they're coming up with these um, different interpretations. But I'm getting the feel, like, that there's a, this, this real fierce desire to link Holmes to the real world, like, for, for him to be a real person, and, like, you know, the, yeah. so, so, much, so much of the entitlement in some of these theories and these, these beliefs uh, and the passion... It's like, no, no, like you don't understand. Like this is Sherlock Holmes. This is the way it is. Like he is a real person. Like there's this whole Pinocchio thing going on. Like I want to make him a real boy, you know? Yeah, it's true. They, they, it's almost like they want to make him like as if he was a real person and, and, and stuff. Although it could also be, you know, I'll put my hand up here. It, it could also be my first introduction to like real obsessive criticism. Like it, it could actually be that. Like maybe I've never encountered a character until I started this journey with you that – is so, um, as you were saying, so canonical, so important in the literary world that there are international people bringing so much energy and passion to the subject that may, maybe this is the first time. Like it was just because I don't. I don't think you get this with James Bond, right? You don't get this with. You don't get this with Game of Thrones. You don't get people creating no. their own fictions of it, even though Game of Thrones is arguably more popular. You don't. You just don't get this type of response. That I've I've discovered here in all of these uh, these scholars, like there are hundreds, no the idea of, of these of people being 
the, uh, the the idea that like this is a, this could possibly be a real person and yeah. and all of the yeah these theories yeah it's definitely to me what it is is it's almost like because of the hundred years of time that's passed since those novels came out over hundred years I should say um, it really feels that um, it's like a comic book character of the present day or the past twenty thirty years being brought to that level of adoration and obsession yeah yeah. Well, anyway, okay, let, let's move on. That, that was a nice little uh, divergent for us. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, so the, our perpetrator, well, <laughs> Moriarty. Oh, oh, before you go away, before you go away to that, that's the other thing I wanted to say. I'm sorry. I was blathering on so much. There, I, <laughs> I came across one thing that was really interesting, though, um, about tuberculosis, because you know that the letter that you gestured at, uh, and of course is in the story, that, that basically lures Watson away about this yes. woman who's contracted tuberculosis the English woman. Right? that's yeah. right the english woman let me read this to you because i thought this was like highly interesting uh and i don't know if this was if if this is a product of good writing or lazy writing on the part of um doyle i i would like to think good because if you ever have an experience that allows you to do something like this and i think a writer should do it anyway let me read it to you uh here we go until the early 1900s, the White Plague was the leading cause of death in the Western world, and it remains epidemic in many developing countries today. Highly contagious consumption, or tuberculosis of the lungs, had devastating consequences in the crowded urban neighborhoods of Edwardian and Victorian society, where the substandard hygiene and sanitation created by rampant poverty left people particularly susceptible to infection. Okay, so what does that tell us? It tells us that Doyle has selected a believable ruse, okay? Yes. For the, for the time, for the time. Symptoms included fever, loss of energy, weight, persistent, often bloody cough. If untreated, TB could ravage the body, eating away at the lungs and other organs. A test for the disease was developed after identification uh, of the tubercle bacillus bacterium in 1882 by German physician Robert Koch, who won the 1905 Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work and also isolated the microorganisms causing anthrax, conjunctivitis, and cholera. Hmm. Anyway, that's interesting. But right, tellingly... Conan Doyle records in his own memories and adventures that his wife Louise was diagnosed with tuberculosis during a visit to the Reichenbach Falls in 1892. Huh. Oh, yes, I recall that. Yes, 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 that's right. She had uh, consumption. I know about the Reichenbach yeah. Falls, though. It's interesting, isn't it? And so here we've got a story where an English lady gets uh, said to suffer from consumption. I just think that's that's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, because uh, there's a note here, too, that in 1893, Conan Doyle and his wife toured Switzerland and discovered the village of Meringen in the Bernese Alps. And so she must have had consumption when she was there. Pretty cool. Interesting. Anyway. Uh, by the way, that, that woman that had – that wife that he, who had consumption, he was already uh, cheating on her at that point. Yeah, I know. It's not, not a nice story, but uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. Right. So you were saying uh, perpetrators. Yeah, Moriarty. Moriarty. So Moriarty, to me, um, because of his quick introduction and quick exit in the state in the tale, equals Blofeld, and I'm talking yeah. about the Fleming Blofeld. Uh, actually, Blofeld probably had more presence. <laughs> Blofeld uh, and Blofeld and Thunderball was was awesome. He was. He sucked in the other ones. Of, and then they did. Then he was kind of a bl- well, no, I bland, bland yeah, villain. I shouldn't say he sucked, but he he sucked in. You only live twice. You only twice, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. The previous novel, *Unread Sacred Service*. I mean, he gets the distinction of you know doing what he does to uh, to bond at the end, but 
in overall, he's the bland villain, and that's kind of what I got from Moriarty here. Um, his later pulp cultural incarnations are much more riveting. The, the idea of his character as an evil doppelganger to Holmes would be far better executed if there was some suggestion to his existence in previous stories. Uh, that's you know what we've been talking about. It's a better state, a better staging, really, of his villainies would have led to a more impactful encounter. He's half-baked in conception, and his malevolence and role in the narrative is superficial. There's potential, and I've said this so many times, but the potential that adaptations mine with wonderful results in the present day. So I give him a three for his legacy alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like just that whole passage of his encounter with Holmes, I think is worth diving into because it's such a great moment. I'm just going to go to it right now. My nerves are fairly poor, pr- are fairly proof, Watson, but I must confess to start when I saw the very man who had been so much and my thoughts standing there on my threshold. His appearance was quite familiar to me. His extremely tall and thin, his forehead domes out in a white curve, and his two eyes are deeply sunken in his head. He is clean-shaven, pale, and ascetic-looking, retaining something of the professor in his features. His shoulders are rounded from much study, and his face protrudes forward and, and, and is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. He peered at me with great curiosity in his puckered eyes. You have less frontal development than I should have expected, said he at last. It is a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. The fact that it is upon his entrance, I had instantly recognized the extreme personal danger in which I lay. The only conceivable escape for him lay in silencing my tongue. An instant I had slipped the revolver from the drawer into my pocket and was covering him through the cloth. At his remark, I drew the weapon out and laid it cocked upon the table. He still smiled and blinked, but there was something about his eyes which made me feel very glad that I had it there. You evidently don't know me, said he. On the contrary, I answered, I think it is very evident, fairly evident that I do. Pray take a chair. I can spare you five minutes if you have anything to say. All that I have to say has already crossed your mind, said he. Then possibly my answer has crossed yours, I replied. You stand fast? Absolutely. He clapped his hand into his pocket, and I raised the pistol from the table, but he merely drew out of a memorandum book in which he had scribbled some dates. You crossed my path on the 4th of January, said he. On the 23rd, you you incommoded me. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. At the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now, at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual persecution that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is becoming an impossible one. Have you any suggestions to make, I asked? You must drop it, Mr. Holmes. The technical difficulties aside here, um, the writing of that passage uh, between the the head-to-head meeting of Holmes and Watt Watson here for the first and last time, well, no, not last, but the first conversation we see between the two of them, uh, it's a really well-staged moment, and it would be so much better if it had a history behind the two characters, like if there was always in the, Moriarty was always in the background or something, and there was hints of his name or something going on, and, and Holmes knew about his existence way before, but didn't tell Watson about it, and until now, until he could prove that he existed, and now they finally, they finally meet or something. I think that would have this whole sequence would have been absolutely incredible prior if there had been prior setup for it. And yeah. that again is my final 3 for legacy alone. Right, okay. And, just, I, and the potential. I also gave a 3 for Moriarty. My reasons were similar. Uh, he's intriguing. I do like that scene you read out, but there's no real explanation given to us as readers. We're not afforded any information. 
that, you know, and I think that's rather upsetting, like about how long he's been in the picture and why he's important. Like, even if this is the swan song, then, you know, give us a little bit more, right? Uh, he just pops up. And after so many standalones, like, here's a big mythology episode that we've got to care about. And Holmes dies. And what the hell? Like, try to think about it at the time. It's, it's really quite a shock. And so I, I don't think it's, um, uh, yeah, perpetrator. He's obviously interesting, but he comes so quickly and, and so fully that it's it's kind of like, or sorry, he comes so quickly and so um, sort of sketchily that we never have a chance to really understand it. And it makes me wonder, and it might make you wonder the same, if Holmes, in the words of Green Day, actually knows his enemy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's enough of that. But um, it made me think of that song, so that's why I came up with that. It's a, it's a, it's a good choice. It's a good choice. And if it's the, and then the yeah, if it's the uh, the context. Well, listen, um, um, I mean, we're running low on time. I don't know if you want to just rush through our scores or come back in a couple hours and uh, and, and finish this off with a bit more of an aplomb. Uh, well, I mean, the environs and the supporting cast are kind of nil in this story anyway. I mean, once we get a cross-country chase, it goes by so fast, and you don't get, you get an impression beyond the chug-chug-chug of plot-plot-plot, you know, throughout that whole sequence. Um, the, the passage that, that describes the falls of Reichenbach is very evocative. That line, I, I do appreciate the backdrop that, that uh, Conan Doyle has given Holmes for, Holmes for his final battle. So I think that really drove the narrative in the end for me in terms of the environs was the uh, the fall of the Reichenbach. So I give it three point five for that alone. Yeah. Well. Um, okay. I, anything I, you want to say about the environs? Yeah, I went I went for a four on the environs just because it was nice to be somewhere else, and I did think that it was fun for Doyle to be writing Holmes and Watson in a different place, and I I liked kind of the tranquility how it juxtaposed with the you know the 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 air the fresh air and the mountains and the the, the valleys and the nice friendly uh, austrian and, and swiss people that are met along the way and of course the the hotel and, and all that I, I thought there was a real nice um feeling to that juxtaposed with the evil that was obviously looming in the environment so i did like the environs and I, you know i went for a four just because i like stuff that has to do with the Alps, and I thought it was cool. That's a nice place for it to happen. It couldn't have happened in London. Holmes knows London too well to ever be caught out there, and so I think it fits that it happens abroad. That all makes sense to me. And the way the environment was kind of manipulated by Moriarty, I thought that was cool, but I didn't go much higher than you, just a half point. I'll finish with the um, the su- supporting players, rather. Um, the most interesting thing about the secondary players here is the fact that Mycroft gets to be a cabbie. I thought that was pretty cool, but... No, there's there's nothing really in here. Like, you know, he's Air Air Stryler and the yeah. Moriarty Swiss page boy. That's about it, really. Although I do think it's interesting. I raised the point when I read the Greek interpreter that Mycroft, you know, led Holmes 
to or sort of delayed Holmes's investigation by not telling him about this and kind of led to the death inadvertently of the client uh, or of um, the the man who the Greek guy and the um, the almost death of Melas the interpreter and here <laughs> in this story he's also if you think about it he's positioned to be an informant for Moriarty because yes like, you know he, he's just he's just there right and he certainly could be um, involved disguised as a coachman so I I think that there's something potentially interesting there but certainly not enough like you've seen in any of the others to go more than a three so i just went for a three uh, uh to be honest i went for a two when it came to supporting players oh, i just wow, found okay. them very basic very basic and that the mycroft appearance was kind of like i don't know i think there could have been something more with mycroft right uh, yeah <laughs> two right. in so the that, end really that totals you up i don't to... think we really we, we, we yeah, we don't really need to have like a. Is it really necessary? I think when it comes to scoring on this one here, I think the. And and whatnot, it's really put together as I've stated. All right, so that's you at a 16 for the final problem, and that's me at a 17.5. That's quite a low score for you. i got to count that up again. 4, 3 is 7, 2 is 9, 9 and 7 is 16. Yeah, you're at 16. I'm at 17.5, so I like that one a little bit more than you, but I think it's fair to say that neither one of these stories were terribly impressive for us. Um, the Naval Treaty, a little more impressive for you. You like the intrigue, the international elements a no. bit more. So the memoirs really ends with a bit of a bit of a whimper. Game of the bit silver blades going on. Here we are. And, yeah, uh, I know. I'm curious to see if if if, 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 if um what how the return of Sherlock Holmes is a little bit of a dip in quality. Mm-hmm. Dip in quality at the end of this uh this this volume of short stories, much like the dip in quality in our uh, technical production here today. This has not been an easy episode to record. It's funny. It's our shortest episode because we only have two. It's probably our longest episode. Yeah, it's our shortest episode to record. Uh, when by the time this is all spliced together, but I'm looking at no less than eleven separate files, and I'm going to have to cut and edit to make this thing possible. Maybe just throw yourself off the falls and come back, man. <laughs> That's a long way to go. It is a long way to go. Hey, well, look, we're, we're, we're back in a month's time, uh, by which time your internet will be sorted and we're going to be talking about um, a really great story I'm excited to read, um, The Hound of the Baskervilles. This is uh, seven or eight, eight or nine years ahead of, of this, so Doyle has enjoyed some time away from Holmes before he brings him back. Yeah, he does, and, I, and, uh, and instead of going, you know, continuing on the, the, I guess, the chronology of the mythos, he's just diving right into a class. Uh, you're disappearing again, man. This is uh, definitely the way the episode was destined to end. Uh, I think I was just saying that I can only I only got really about to end. I only got about fifteen percent of what you said. You sounded like a, a pixelated eight bit game. 
Well, I was just going to say that the Hound of Baskervilles would be a nice Halloween treat, and I hope you get some Willem scream like sound effects or uh, growling dogs yeah. and stuff. Like <laughs> yeah, that. we'll we'll get some it. Spooky, some sp- sp- some spooky synthesizer, you know that sort of stuff. Yeah, and you know what? I'll uh, I'll make up for the. Uh... It'll, it'll be fun. It'll be great fun, and we'll make up for the lack of... Uh, like, there's all kinds of notes here. I'm looking through my notes. There's all kinds of stuff I wanted to talk about here with these stories, and, you know, little things here, little things there. I wanted to ask more questions and have more more discussion, more banter, but it's just not the day for that, buddy. Well, what and we can do... We'll make up for yeah, it. Well, we, we, uh, when it comes to... We get we get the return of Sherlock Holmes. We kind of go over our thoughts about uh, the... Um, the Reichenbach fall and other, and other notes that we might have had at the time, you know, and we can use that as fodder before we get to the main show when we uh, deal with the resurrection. That sounds like an excellent idea. And uh, our next episode will be far more polished. But don't worry, by the time the music is added and the files are all split up, this will be, this will be a good show, not to worry. Tell me what music that you plan to play, and I will listen to it as if I was listening to it with you on the show, and then you can just insert that song in there at the end for us. Okay, I'll do that very thing. Um, the next song that we're going to, the next song that we're going to listen to, uh, at least I think. Uh, let me double check this here. Uh, yeah, okay. Next tune we're going to be listening to is the uh, the great Pat Benatar with "Hit Me with Your Best Shot." <laughs> nice. So we'll, we'll we'll finish off the show with that. But uh, for now, for me, buddy, it's uh, it's it's goodbye and uh, good luck with that internet connection. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Okay. Uh, talk to everyone else soon as well. We'll see you back for The Hound of the Baskervilles. Episode 11. Adieu. Adieu. Hit me